This episode of the What's Real podcast is dedicated to Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff, and William Smith. It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? Welcome back. It is episode 77 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. What's going on? The motherfucking J. The Senteta y Siete. See how good my Spanish is? Hate y'all episode here. But as you can tell from the voice and the initial promo, the J, I'm as pumped as ever. As I was stating last week, the 21-inch pythons are back and in full force. And I am knowing that, as always, we have a myriad of topics. We have some great segments planned. And I'm ready to go over all the shit with you. Hate you out for the big 7-7. We do have a big show for you guys this week, uh, movie heavy, if you will, but it's still going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to have some goofs or goofs as usual, all kinds of fun stuff. And the two movies are both brand new. Actually, I should say three movies. I'm wrong here. Uh, we are going to look at the Tomorrow War from 2021, and we're going to take a look at the two brand new Fear Streets, of course, uh, 1994 and 1978. So, and of course, uh, there are three films in that series and we're going to be talking 1666 next week and much more, of course, but let's get into it. The J and unfortunately we have a double dose of sadness to start the show this week. Um, one of them is, I, I guess I'll start with this one. Cause this one's probably, uh, you know, goes back even further, I suppose for both of us. Uh, the passing passing of none other than Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, um, known uh, around the world to many, many wrestling fans. Uh, I heard somebody explain him as the uh, the bad guy version of Hulk Hogan, uh, which in the mid 80s is to me the perfect example. Um, he would go on to main event, the original WrestleMania, uh, Hulk Hogan and Mr. T versus Rowdy Roddy Piper and Paul Orndorff. Um, and also Hulk Hogan and Paul Orndorff had to this day uh, one of the best house show runs money wise in WWE WWF history. Um, it was one of the biggest feuds they had going in 1985. Um, they took it all over the place and it did really, really big numbers. Um, of course, Paul Orndorff would go on to have a wrestling career all over the world. Uh, last time we saw him uh, in a wrestling ring, though, was in the 1990s in WCW. Uh, several time television champion and of course tag team champions with Paul Roma, uh, the tag team of Pretty Roma or Pretty Wonderful, I'm sorry, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, so that's pretty sad to see. Paul Paul Orndorff passes on at the age of 71. That's that's one of those first things off the bat, like you mentioned, hate you with the popularity uh, in the 80s and the rise of Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan isn't Hulk Hogan without a strong villain. It's like anything, you know, the 80s pro wrestling formula was good versus evil, basically, and that sort of thing. And Paul Orndorff was such a great 80s heel. I think that's the biggest part of his legacy. Uh, but such a such a storied career uh, besides just that, of course, as well. As I always mention, hey, you know, I started in 92 as a wrestling fan when I was 12. I got into it a little later than a lot of you guys, my close friends that started as, as young kids in the 80s. Uh, and I just bring that up. Because for me, you know, the 80s and stuff was kind of all over the place starting in 92. I would kind of get caught up on all that stuff as I would go. 
So it was like varying how I saw stuff depending on the tapes, you know, the the glory days of West Coast video that we would get most of our wrestling tapes for rentals from in, in Forest Hills in Pittsburgh. And yep. uh, again, bringing that up, specifically talking about Paul Orndorff for myself personally, when I first started getting into WCW in the early 90s there, that was my introduction to Paul Orndorff. And I can still remember him sticking out just, you know, like his son said in, in his Instagram post, most of you will remember him for his physique. And then he goes on to say, many, many will remember his intensity. And he hit the nail on the head for me because of course, that's the first things that come to mind. Seeing him as a young kid in the nineties in WCW was his tremendous physique. And that combination with his intensity and his intensity stood out in a world that most of the guys were intense. Absolutely, dude. Uh, I can even mention this just a couple months ago. I forget what I was watching or what I, what I was in the process of watching, but uh, I was watching some matches and I remember the thing that kept popping up was the jobbers in these matches were Mick Foley and Shane Douglas. So this is the WWF in, in the 1980s, like probably about 1986 or so. And uh, one of the matches that I saw was Shane Douglas as a jobber. I think he was even using Troy Martin at the time. He wasn't using Shane Douglas. Uh, and the match was against Paul Orndorff. And I knew that it, this wasn't the case. But, man, it looked like Orndorff was laying into him. And it, he wasn't at all. It's just that intensity uh, in his matches. And that's something that. You know, we would kind of see return to wrestling, I guess, in like the 90s with a lot of people, especially with thou who shall not be named uh, Mr. Waugh, first name Crispin. Uh, but, you know, it, it, shit was intense. And like some of these guys understood that that intensity is really important in the world of professional wrestling. And the two guys that I think of that I thought like always showed that the most was Dynamite Kid and Paul Orndorff. I agree. That that was that kind of prototype because in a tweet, WWE, just like, you know, the WWE.com site said that Mr. Orndorff brought a swagger and style to the WWE universe that turned his talent into a prototype for the modern day superstar. And that kind of goes hand in hand what you were saying there. Hey, you know, and I definitely um, agree with that sentiment for sure with Mr. Wonderful. And another thing that people might remember, and it's kind of odd even looking back on it, but in the 1980s, uh, especially when the WWF was starting to get really big and, you know, doing their nationwide expansion and stuff, they would expand into toys and merchandise and things like that. And one of the things I always remembered as a kid, what, Jesus. Yeah, sorry. Okay. You know, that's uh, my ESPN.com reference. You know, the corporations, even when you have it muted, got to throw sound at your ass. So I apologize for the interruption on our Mr. Wonderful tribute here. No, it's all good. But uh, but one of the things that uh, they used to have a commercial for was this Hulk Hogan workout set. I and remember this is that. Really it was super weird that Hulk Hogan's not in the commercial at all. Instead, Paul Orndorff was in the commercial. Um, I have no idea why I always remembered that so much. Um, but that was a commercial that was on TV quite a bit in the mid 80s. So, you know, Paul Orndorff was definitely out there. And, you know, it, it's pretty sad because I know that he's been in really, really poor health like the last year or so. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, our, our thoughts and everything go out with the family and, and even to the fans of Paul Orndorff, because we were definitely two of them for sure. So obviously, rest in peace to Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. 
And just to close that out on my head, uh, and hey, y'all, I thought this was um, unique because off the top of my head, I can't remember if we called out uh, Paul Orndorff as on this list, but we threw a quick kind of one of those tidbit lists that we do of guys, you know, the top guys that never won a major championship. And Orndorff would be right up there. Yeah. I mean, as far as world titles go, absolutely. Because right. he's, ha- he's had a bunch of other titles and a bunch of territories and stuff. Um, he was even a big deal. This is kind of kind of cool. I don't know how much of this stuff you've ever seen, but he had a short little run in Smoky Mountain that was pretty good um, because it was all centered around the pile driver, which was his finisher. And, uh, you know, they always do that thing in the Southern Territories where like somebody gets crippled by a pile driver so nobody could use it. But yet they still use it. They just do it behind the referee's back and stuff. And they did a really, really good uh, angle and stuff with all that in uh, in Smoky Mountain in the 90s. So, you know, Orndorff always found a way because he was a serviceable worker. He looked good. Um, and guys like that it, through those eras of wrestling always found work. And he's, to me, like one of the best examples of that. Yeah, uh, amazing career. And and, and just, th- you know, th- this kind of goes with the realities and kind of the grim side. Uh, that's that's why there's such a hit show, the dark side of the ring with professional wrestling. And of course, guys stemming from the 70s, 80s into the 90s and the lifestyle that they led. And Mr. Orndorff, um, as my reference article here says, because I saw a little bit about this, that an Instagram post before his death, uh, Orndorff's son alluded to concerns about brain damage from wrestling. And three days before Paul Orndorff died, his son posted a picture of one of his father's notebooks on Instagram with a phone number. And it said, if you can't read it, it says, son, I think I haven't had that phone number since 2005. Mr. Orndorff's son said in the caption, I hope the world will start to take notice of the brain damage and the consequences of this lifestyle. And Paul Orndorff was involved in several cases followed by a group of former wrestlers against WWE claiming that they had suffered neurological damage such as chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Good try the J as a result of physical trauma. Encephalopathy. I know the word so much because of football. There you go. Good job. Hey, yeah. Way to pick your boy up. And uh, that it does go on to say that the cases were dismissed because the claims were filed after a statute of limitations expired and or because they were frivolous court documents show uh, complete information on survivors was not immediately available uh, per Monday night, which brings up speaking of Monday night, a thing that I heard, because as we talk about, I usually just delete my recorded raw because I'm just so not into raw as it is right now. But supposedly there was no tribute or anything uh, for Mr. Wonderful on Raw and people were upset about that. My understanding was they showed the graphic at the beginning of the show. I didn't see it. But there was no further tribute. No. Gotcha. Nope. They didn't do a music video. They didn't do that type of thing and they probably should have. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Dude, let me just throw this out here for this. Common sense would tell me that if any major player from the National Expansion Days passes away, they should get that treatment. Right. Period. I'm with you. Um, and dude, I saw this and this is a pretty sad note, uh, especially for our history with professional wrestling. Um, Cause you said even, you know, you, you came a little bit later, but your, your history goes back, I would say comfortably to the original WrestleMania, even though you weren't watching it live. Yeah. Like especially you're, you're at this point with the era. Right. Or, or, or dude, at the very least, like you might not have watched wrestling, but did you ever watch when you were a kid? Did you watch the Hulk Hogan rock and roll cartoon? Yeah. So, okay. So you're right there in the era. 
dude, this really sucks. WrestleMania one's main event, Hulk Hogan and Mr. T versus Roddy Piper and Orndorff. Piper and Orndorff are no longer with us. WrestleMania two, Hulk Hogan, King Kong, Bundy. Bundy's no longer with us. WrestleMania three and four for Hogan were against Andre the Giant. He's been gone since 1993. WrestleMania five main event, Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage. He's no longer with us. WrestleMania seven or WrestleMania six, Hogan and Warrior. Warrior's no longer with us. WrestleMania seven is Slaughter, who is still with us. And eight is uh, Sid, and he's still with us. And nine, he wrestled in two matches, one in a tag match uh, against DiBiase and IRS, who are still with us. And he won the championship against Yokozuna, who is no longer with us. Um, now, of course, he would come back years later and wrestle The Rock and Vince McMahon. They're both still with us. But, man, those early days of Hulkamania, um, you know, they're really coming to a close fast. Yeah, such, you know, again, it was just such a brutal lifestyle back then. I mean, it still is, but they've cleaned it up significantly. Um, thank God, of course, for the talent. And, and, and this goes uh, nowhere near as bad now because they used to do that shit like they still travel a lot now. But back then you would have to like wrestle in Washington, D.C. in the afternoon and then wrestle at nine o'clock in fucking like, you know, Michigan or something like that's, yeah. that's brutal. They're wrestling two, three times a day, certain periods. Yeah, it was it was just nuts. You know, especially that's that's gonna be another interesting topic, not to side tangent, with the current product going back on the road. You know, the wrestlers probably were were used to being, you know, in the same vicinity for a year and a half. So it's gonna be interesting to see how they adapt. You know, like anything, I'm sure you just you know, you do what you got to do and get, get used to it. Uh, but, but you bringing that up, Hey Ed goes hand in hand as well with a, a thing I was seeing on wrestling social media. It was a, a picture of the original Heenan family uh, that goes oh, right yeah. into what you were just saying. All of them have passed, which would be Andre, the giant King Kong Bundy, Paul Orndorff. Now, of course, Bobby, Mr. Perfect, Rick Rude, and big John stud all passed away. Yep. The entire original Heenan family. Now that Paul Orndorff passed away. So yep. rest in peace to all our guys, man. And there's even more. Uh, Hercules is another one that was in the Heenan family that's gone. Um, you know, the only person I can think of off the top of my head that's still around who was in the Haku. Heenan family. Yep, that's the only yeah. one. That's terrible, man. Yeah, it's sad. <sighs> and unfortunately, guys, the sadness doesn't stop this week. Um, this past week, uh, it was confirmed by Joanne Cirelli Smith, his wife of 31 years. Uh, that actor William Smith has passed away. Um, William Smith, his career is pretty wild, uh, if you think about it. This guy seriously was in the movies starting in 1942's Frank, The Ghost of Frankenstein, and he would continue to make films up until 2020. Uh, he's in Conan the Barbarian. Um, he's, I mean, he's worked with Clint Eastwood, Rod Taylor, Richard Harris, Joel Brenner, Nick Nolte, um, he appeared as a regular on the last season of the original Hawaii 5.0 from 1979 to 1980. I uh, started the Western series Wild Side in 1985. Um, his last role was in a 2020 film, Irresistible, written and directed by John Stewart. Uh, and uh, he was a Air Force veteran during the Korean War. Uh, he was rec recruited by the National Security Agency due to his fluency in multiple languages. He flew on secret missions over the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc countries, while, uh, according to a statement shared by his wife. Uh, he was an accomplished athlete, receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy of Bodybuilding and Fitness in 1995. 
He was inducted into the Muscle Beach Venice Bodybuilding Hall of Fame in 2010 and became an honorary member of the Stuntman's Association of Motion Pictures in 2000. He's survived by his wife and his son, William E. Smith III, and his daughter, Sherry Ann Cervelli. Um, dude, William Smith is literally one of the most prolific character actors of all time. Uh, in movies like Any Which Way You Can and Red Dawn, um, he had a whole career in the 70s in westerns and exploitation films and still managed to make major Hollywood pictures as well. Um, he always found himself in demand because he could do his own stunts. He could act. He could play a plethora of different nationalities. Um, and he did that quite frequently. And uh, and I've always kind of been uh, a fan of like his 70s biker flicks because he always played like the baddest motherfucker in the land. And they were always really fun to watch. Um, this dude lived an incredibly full life, obviously. Um, but dude, it's really weird because he, to me, he's one of those people that, and me and you've talked about this many times off the air. And I think on the air too, a few times, like those people that you just feel like are going to live forever. And he's one of those to me. Yeah. And then you just hear the news and it's just like, fuck, you know, it just hits mm -hmm. you. As as Elric Kane here on Twitter, shout out to Elric Kane. Rest in peace to the Hollywood man himself, William Smith. What a badass legend. Cue his darker than amber fight with Rod Taylor in memoriam. And, uh, and you know me as I talk about and will continue to talk about here on What's Real, my love for probably uh, one of my favorite, well, because I was going to say probably my favorite movie of all time. We'll just go with one of my favorite movies of all time, Conan the Barbarian, where he was actually considered for the Conan role at one yep. point in the pre-production process. And then, of course, famously plays uh, Conan's father, you know, talking about the riddle of steel at the beginning and there. He, dude. How good is he in that role, man? Oh, amazing. Like, you know, that's, and dude, that's... I don't, I, and think about this just offhand, right? What's the age difference between him and Schwarzenegger? Uh, not sure. I don't have his dates pulled up. Well, I mean, I know he was 88. Do you know how old Schwarzenegger is right now? Gotta be 73 ish. So he played his fucking father in a movie and he's really only like, <laughs> yeah, well, and he was, yeah, he's considered for the, the Conan role and then plays the dad. And dude, that's, yeah. and, and think about this, dude. And I'm, I'm asking you, cause I know that's one of your favorite movies of all time. The first thing you think of with Conan is of course, Schwarzenegger. When you think of the next thing that you think about, he's right there. Oh, with of course. Anything. Yeah. The beginning, the beginning scene starts everything, man, with the village getting raided by false doom and the music and all that. Yeah, I mean, dude, he was really, and dude, this guy, this is a guy, too, known as a character actor, but stood in there with heavyweights, was the perfect heavy for almost anything you can think of. And, dude, the I guess the best way I can put this, and it's kind of repeating uh, what the dude on Twitter said, but it's, it's a little bit different. I said this to a friend of mine uh, when I first found this out, and it was like, dude, when you look in the dictionary next to badass motherfucker, William Smith wouldn't be a bad picture to put there because I mean, from the secret missions to the stuntman shit to being this actor and a tough guy, like it wasn't a role for him. That's the world that he's from. That's that's what's always impressive to me too. Hey Ed, are legit veterans that saw action 
that survive the war that they're involved in and go on to have just these ridiculous legendary careers, you know, more than 300 acting credits. As you mentioned, he was a U.S. Air Force veteran of the Korean War. Uh, that's always impressive to me uh, just from a real standpoint, you know, real life standpoint when you're talking about somebody that's known for for being on screen. And on top of that, I wanted to throw this in into this in memoriam we're doing here on What's Real uh, for William Smith. Uh, Smith on his favorite role, he said in a 2010 interview with BZ Film, my favorite TV screen villain would be Falconetti from the Rich Man, Poor Man miniseries and Rich Man, Poor Man book two. I really enjoyed working with Nick Nolte and Peter Strauss. The fight scenes with Nick and I were good ones. And as as we do on the podcast, I don't know if I've ever caught the, I mean, that was a 1976 ABC miniseries, Rich Man, Poor Man. So that's something I wouldn't mind tracking down, even if I had to watch it on YouTube, you know, just speaking of it. And that might be the only way you can. Um, a yeah, lot of that stuff thinking. is unfortunately, you know, lost to time. Uh, right. But, Dude, it's that's also too. Th- th- I think this is a good time to bring this up because he's he's definitely in that class, and I think this is something about Hollywood that is completely gone by the wayside uh, through the years. But there was this uh, fraternity, I guess, of Hollywood tough guys, and it, like, dude, the best example I can give to you is if you've ever seen uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Brad Pitt character is based off like 20 different people, like for real. And I can tell you this for a fact. I've mentioned it on the show in the past. Gary Kent is somebody that I know personally uh, who was a Hollywood stuntman for decades. Um, you know, William Smith is in there for sure. Um, you know, and then guys like, uh, you know, John Bud Cardos and and like the real old school, like, and, and the difference here is this, this is kind of what I'm getting to. William Smith, former combat veteran, uh, John Bud-, Bud Cardos, a former veteran and a former Golden Gloves boxing champion, like just, you know, like not to be corny, but like guys that are from the days of when we men were fucking men, like hard men, hard living who were able to do so many different things in their life. And, you know, they, these are guys that come from a background where like people would have looked at him like, oh, you're doing the acting thing where you turn it into a girl like that kind of shit. yeah right. and, and and you wouldn't say this shit to their fucking face because they were badass dudes so they're badasses dude, that can act <laughs> and dude that that used to like help define an era with you know without guys like this you wouldn't have a movie for example like mad max uh people that are half insane doing stunts and making it a fucking spectacle there were movies that were that's solely the purpose of watching them is to see the insane shit they're doing in the movie. And that stuff just doesn't exist anymore, obviously, because of insurance and yada, yada, yada. But exactly. Like, it's just I, a bygone era. Of, yeah. And I look back longingly on it because I think there's a lot of fantastic stuff from that time period. They talk about the last of a dying breed. I mean, guys in Hollywood like that don't exist anymore. Like I mentioned, it's a bygone era. Uh, you you might have, you know, Clint Eastwood in that talk. But other than that, you know, those guys don't exist anymore. You know, that era is past. You know, you're not going to throw a Brad Pitt or even a Jason Statham or The Rock as those type of guys that you're talking about. You know, it's, it's a particular era. Like you mentioned, like combat veterans and guys just, you know, coming from the hard drinking stuff. And, and, and hard just like living. you said, tr- just hard living and just true badasses. And, you know, with our, our tribute here, just another one to throw out, closing out, hey, you know, from shout out to Daily Grindhouse. William Smith, God tier among the Grindhouse greats, has left us. Tremendous screen presence, 
Who do you cast to make Clint Eastwood break a sweat in a fist fight? Who do you cast to play Conan the Barbarian's daddy? Who's the baddest of the movie bad men? William Smith, a legend. Rest in peace, and, man. And you know what, man? I, I've always thought this personally. Uh, to me, Clint Eastwood's greatest rival was Lee Van Cleef. But right behind him was William Smith. For sure, at number two, without a doubt. So, you know, uh, to a guy who really worked with heavyweights and lived a, a, an amazing life. And, and he was a guy that I actually got to meet uh, at one point. Um, it was a weird kind of thing because he was not in the best health at the time. But it, I'm still glad that I had the opportunity to meet him in any capacity. Um, and like I said, man, and like you said, the Jay, these are the last of a dying breed. So, you know, cheers to you, William Smith. Rest in peace for sure. And thank you for all of your great work that you've left behind for us to enjoy uh, for the remainder of our days on this planet. So uh, moving right along here into uh, a few more uh, lighter topics, so to speak. Um, now, this one, the Jay, has been getting a lot of traction, and I had to bring it up because we've been kind of on a hiatus. I know we try and scale back a little bit on it when it's not football season because we cover so much of it during the year. But ESPN recently came out with their top 10 quarterback rankings, and this is according to executives, coaches, and players involved in the process. So this is pretty weird that they, <laughs> that they would do it like this. Um, but I, I don't like how they did it. Okay. Of when it's, it's, it's denoted as active quarterbacks, because when you first yes. mentioned it to me, I had thought that it might be all time kind of thing like we did last week. Yeah. So, you know, just to differentiate that it's act, like all the top NFL quarterbacks currently. Yes. Now, number one is pretty clear cut to me. And I don't think that anybody's going to really argue with this, but it was Patrick Mahomes. Okay. So I agree with two that. Yeah. Was Aaron Rodgers. I totally get that too. Coming off an MVP season makes total sense. Three, Tom Brady just won the Super Bowl. No big deal there. Okay. Four, Russell Wilson. Five is Josh Allen. And now we're going to hit the brakes real quick because I think that this dude's a pretty good quarterback, but you're out of your fucking mind if you think Matthew Stafford is six. What are they doing? I know That's he's playing crazy. for. Like, he's playing for the Rams, and dude, I'll be honest, I think he might have the best year of his career this year with the Rams. I do. But he hasn't done that yet. So, like, can we keep him? I, dude, I if he's in the top 10, he's towards the end of it, if at all. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, and the Lions are the Lions, but they've had some decent receivers and things like that for him to play with. And, yeah, he hasn't been a barn burner of a quarterback by any stretch to be ranked that high. And, and it's one of those things I think they kind of overcomplicate things because like you were alluding to, Hey, you know, in this article, they kind of break down their criteria and it's this whole crazy list of how they break it down. You know, I mean, obviously you have the, the obvious stuff like accuracy and, and, you know, yards Stats passing and, yeah. and touchdowns, but then it goes on and on. It's like, it's so like convoluted. So to, to just round this out, at seven is Dak Prescott. I could live with him there because of the injury last year. Otherwise, he's top right, five. Right, yeah, I mean, he was on fire until he got hurt. Lamar Jackson. Now, I'm not trying to shit on Lamar Jackson here, okay? And the dude's a modern-day Gale Sayers, right? Like, that's the best compliment I can give him. But it's also not a compliment because he's a fucking quarterback. 
Um, if you're going to put him in the top 10 to me, he should probably sit at around 10 just because he's not throwing the ball a whole lot. Like it, it's goofy. Uh, number nine is Justin Herbert, um, who I had in fantasy last year and who had an amazing year and is going to be going to do great things for sure. But he shouldn't be in the top 10 at all. That's, Let's yeah, just that's be perfectly high. honest. And the last one at number 10, of course. Now, we've talked about on the show many times about how good Kyler Murray is. Um, I also think it's a little too early to put him in the top 10. Now, you know, they go on to talk in this article about no Matt Ryan. Yeah, he shouldn't be in the top 10. Uh, ben Roethlisberger, who I don't think should be in the top 10. Joe Burrow should not be in the top 10. Now, here's my biggest issue. And we're talking about all... Uh, football only here. Okay. This is all I'm making. The point is in football. I don't care what's going on with the guy, but how the fuck do you not put Deshaun Watson on this list? I don't care about what's happening with him in the real world at the moment. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the top 10 best quarterbacks in the league right now. Did they leave him off as just like a, an asterisk? Or is this just some hate? Because that's ridiculous. Break it down like this, hey, who would you rather have as a general manager of an NFL football team, Matthew Stafford or Deshaun Watson? Yeah, I mean, minus the allegations. Like, if we're just talking a talent level, I yeah, would of course that's what take, I mean. Dude, I would take Deshaun Watson over every single guy we just mentioned, except for Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, so, yeah, maybe there's something to it with the – the allegation thing, but goofy list. I don't, you know, like I, I don't, I, you know, it's not like it's just completely out of left field and they're so wrong. They couldn't be any more wrong, but like, man, I don't know. Like, you know, like I said, I'm, we didn't really argue over a lot of the top five, you know, like uh, would, should, yeah, it's, I mean, it's tough there? to like, hey, I the NFL, you know, the Super Bowl MVP. I mean, what can you say? I mean, it's, you know, it's the, the, the arguments there to be made, but I'd go with, you know, if I'm arguing that side of it, I'm like, you know, Super Bowl MVP won the the, the biggest championship you could win this year as the quarterback and, then, and was the MVP of the game. And then I can also throw back at you stuff like he did and they got him all the toys to play with in the world. And Aaron Rodgers basically won an MVP with a bunch of injured receivers and a team that's that drafted a fucking quarterback last year. So there is there really that much despair? Like, is there that much space between him and Brady at this point? Like, and I'm not shitting on Brady, but they're both vastly different players in the way that they play. Brady plays more of a baseline standard type play that is very effective. Aaron Rodgers makes everyone around him significantly better. I don't think that Brady's like that. He used to be, but I don't think he's like that anymore. That's pretty crazy to have that much distance between one, two, and three to me. It's, it's goofy. Yeah. And, and as I always disclaimer with, you know, not to be eye rolling because I say it all the time with these lists, but at the end of the day, that's, that's why, and again, I, I, a hundred percent support you bringing them up and it's fun to talk about, but at the end of the day, it's subjective and opinion based, no matter what, you know? So that's what creates that where you're just like some of the things they bring up, like what the fuck. And they're usually, they usually do. And this is why we've talked about it on the show. Why we don't really particularly care for lists is because they're usually done to be controversial 
to get people talking. Clickbait. It's done, it, yeah, it's done for clicks. It's not really a, a, an intelligent discussion or something really interesting about it. But I've seen enough people talk about this in the last week that I wanted to bring it up here on the show and kind of yeah, see sure. like where it stood with us because I, I was like, that's a little weird. But um, this one's just a real quick one, and, and we'll obviously get into this uh, a little bit further with basketball. Uh, but until this week, uh, the United States men's basketball team was 54-0 and uh, since it started sending pros to the Olympics uh, in exhibitions, okay? They lost their last two in a row to Nigeria, who two times, like the last three times they played, the, the United States beat them by 80 points, 40 points, and they just lost to them. And the other team was Australia. Um, is this cause to panic or is this just like, eh, players are just kind of being lazy until the shit gets started? Yeah, I caught the interview with Greg Popovich, who's coaching them on ESPN. And it, like the guys on on the show I was watching were kind of calling them out with. And, and that's what happens. Like you, you have to do the rhetoric in these interviews and stuff. And at the end of the day, you're, you're trying to argue against losing the two exhibition games, you know, yeah. but they were just throwing them under the bus for just using excuse after excuse. But what can he do as the coach? But yeah, I'm right with you, man, from going from 54 and O to just losing two of the exhibition games here in a row. And, and like you said, the second one to Australia, it's, it's kind of discerning for sure. And there's a lot of teams around the world that are much better at basketball than they used to be. Hence why, you know, you have guys like Luka Doncic in, in the NBA because the world game has changed and it's significantly better than it used to be. But they lost to Nigeria and Australia. They're not exactly powerhouses in the world of international basketball. Exactly. So something's got to give, man. But I'll tell you what, this was kind of the, the discussion I seen around it the other day. Do you see this as trouble? And do you think the United States are, will still win the gold medal? I don't. I'm not going to like freak out about it, but like, I just have a feeling the U S is not going to win gold in this Olympics. Maybe I'm wrong and they just steamroll everybody, but I have a funny feeling it's not going to happen. I mean, exhibition is exhibition. You know, I'll say that for sure, but it's yes. definitely still kind of, you know, gives you an idea what, what could be possible here. I mean, it's not like they got blown out. I think Nigeria was, one ninety to eighty seven, then Australia ninety one to eighty three. Although saying that out loud is kind of discerning. Ninety one to eighty three, you know, it's not as close as ninety to eighty seven. Uh, but again, it's still it's still exhibition. So exactly. So we'll have to see. And I mean, I will give some of the NBA guys a pass because some of these guys just stopped playing in the regular season. Or I mean, they lost in the playoffs, so they were just playing like a few weeks ago. They haven't had much rest. Um, and speaking of that, we're in the middle of the NBA finals and we record the show on Tuesday. So as we sit right now, going into game four, it is two one Suns uh, up on the Bucks. I don't know how much of this you've had a chance to watch the J, but uh, I've been watching. OK, so I'm, we're I'm into sitting. it. Do you feel like this this is still the Sun series to win or do you think they're in some serious trouble with the Bucks kind of rebounding the same way they did in the last series against Brooklyn? Dude, everybody, like all all my friends, you know, I, as you know, hey, I spent spent the weekend with some buddies of ours. Uh, you know, we went away for a little weekend getaway, and of course, we were talking some hoops. And uh, there was four of us down there, and the other three guys were all thinking still that it was definitely the Suns. I personally, especially because we didn't watch uh, Game Three yet to that point, it was that night. You know, we were 
together till Sunday. Yep. And the one big thing that you got to say is Jonas can change that whole series the way that he's playing as dominant as he's playing. What, what goes against that is the fact that he'd still play dominant in games one and two, and they still found a way to lo- lose. Yep. So it's definitely up in the air, but I, you know, as easily as the three guys I was referencing, our buddies were saying, Oh, the sun's got this. I'd put my eyebrow up for that, that I think it's going to be more of a, a competition than they were making it seem in their opinions. And my prediction at this point is honestly, I, I feel like it's still going to find a way to go to game seven. See, I feel like, like I think people that are taking game three uh, the wrong way, frankly. Um, I still think the Suns are going to win, and I'll tell you why. Um, they won game three, and the thing that no one is talking about is how that might have been one of the worst games Devin Booker's ever had for the Suns. That's a good point. And, and do you know who, like, what Devin Booker is? A, he's a mold of a former player to a T. And do you know who it is? No. Kobe Bryant. So what oh, I, expect, I remember you mentioning that, yeah. Because, dude, he used to train with Kobe like he learned from Kobe. So that's how he models his game, just like how Kobe did off Jordan. Dude, Devin Booker might have 50 tonight. Um, I don't like that's a dude that I didn't really buy into until the last couple of seasons. And I'm like, no, this dude's absolutely the fucking real deal. And I also think that Chris Paul will put his life on the line to win a title. Um, but the bottom line is Giannis really doesn't matter with the Bucks. He's going to do his thing regardless. Okay. It's just Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton and those guys like, are they going to show up or not? Yeah, They have to show up and they have to. Well, and, and because the, the one advantage that the Bucks have is they have the complete size advantage in this game. Um, but if the Suns get it together with their shooting, it's a wrap. Forget about it. They're not going to win if the Suns are shooting lights out. So, you know, it's interesting. It's I'll be honest. It's been better than I thought it was going to be going into it because I really thought this was going to be maybe five, six games. Kind of Suns just win it fairly easily. Um, But that's not the case. And then another thing that I think is kind of cool about it, too, is the Suns, before they got really good years ago, they drafted DeAndre Ayton pretty early in the first round. And he was supposed to be a major player. And they thought that he was kind of a bust. Well, in the last year, he's come on. But the thing is, is he's literally the big man for Phoenix. So, like, if he plays lights out, they could win this very easily. So I'm very curious to kind of see where DeAndre Ayton is in his career. Like, is he going to rise to the occasion? Or is he kind of more of a bust, like people were saying, you know, just a season or two ago? Great breakdown. Hey, you know, so let's let's have some fun on the show. And for the peeps listening and for, for us to have some fun, as we always say, recording on a Tuesday with game four being tonight, uh, the peeps will be listening from Friday on. So you'll know it, what our predictions were uh, from you know tonight's game. Who do who you think for game four? I'm going to go with the Suns. It's going to be pretty close, um, but I think that the Suns rebound in their shooting, and I don't think they're going to beat the hell out of them. I think it's still going to be a close game, but I think the Suns are going to squeak it out to take it back to Phoenix, where I think they're going to close out the series and win the championship. All right, works out, because I, I, I was going to go with Milwaukee, which I would still feel would be an upset, but you know, especially with you going first and picking the Suns, again, having fun on the show, I was thinking in any way that will be my deciding factor. Hey, you 
Let's go with Milwaukee's pick for the J for game four. So let's see who got this. You know, it'll be very interesting. Uh, Moving right along here as far as championships go, the Tampa Bay Lightning, since we recorded last, had gone on to win another Stanley Cup, and they've already dented the fucking thing having these pool parties, uh, (laughs) which we've seen for the second time this year with, you know, the Buccaneers winning it. And I don't know Brady all hammered. Yeah, I don't know how most people think about this, so I'm just going to put it out into the ether. This kind of shows that the Tampa franchises don't deserve to win shit, okay? they Every time they fucking have what they win, they go out on water and throw fucking trophies around. That's stupid. <laughs> you have a fucking... You know why they don't have a goddamn parade in this fucking city? Because there's nowhere to do it. There's no major fucking main street, so they just have it in the water. and eh, It's cute. Tampa sucks. It's not a not a city I'm fond of. Put it that way. I'll I'll stick up for him a little bit because how dare you? You were you were right by my side in in our early twenties. That a lot of these guys, even mid to late twenties, you know me, I'd be like simulating sex with the Stanley Cup. I'd be like out driving it. So I can't go too far in judgment, but I did think it was funny. There was a picture I saw on, on social media that has the picture of the one dude holding the cup and the Stanley cup is dented to high hell. And he said, you know, sarcastically, yeah, that'll buff out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is, you know, and it's funny because the two sports we're talking about here are pretty close. It's just a bunch of fucking meatheads throwing trophies around. So it's not the smartest guy in the room. Like, guys, we're going to dent the trophy. Like, shut up, Poindexter, throw the fucking thing. Like, that's what it is. And as ESPN reports, the cup will be sent to Canada for repairs before being returned to the Bay Area. So a follow-up was posted poking fun at the Canadians and reading, hey, congrats, Montreal. You get the cup for a few days after all. (laughs) No, Dude, no word on how the team damaged the cup as well. Hey, you know, so speculation I, there. I will say this, man. So <laughs> this is where shit sucks for people. Um, Tampa's really good, right? Like they they might be on a verge of a dynasty here with this. Hey, back to back championships. Um, first first time since the Pens. Shout out the Pens. Exactly. So, uh, and it's funny because the only reason. The Montreal Canadiens made the cup this year is because they had to reorganize the league because the Canadian teams didn't play in America until, you know, the, the playoffs, really. Yeah, for yeah for the almost post Otherwise, they, w- they would have been in, you know, the same division as us here in the East, and no- nobody, you know, they wouldn't have did shit. They would have been gone already because Tampa would have been the team to come out of the East most likely. But isn't it kind of funny <laughs> that Montreal kind of dumb lucks their way into this fucking thing? And then I saw after they came back and won, I think it was game two, they were celebrating in the streets of Montreal. Like they were about to win the fight. Like we're going to come all the way back. Nope. You lost the last game. You're done. And next season shit's going to go back to normal and you're going to not be good. So that's kind (laughs) of funny. It's like you had one chance and you fucking blew it to the Tampa dude. Way to be. I mean, plus it's kind of funny if you think about this, like, you know, the game of hockey basically is born out of Toronto and Montreal, and they couldn't beat the fucking team from Tampa. <laughs> yeah, it's it's 90 right now. Yeah, the place where ice only lasts so long. It's like, but, you know, like, put it this way, dude. I don't expect the American baseball team to go rock the knot of the Dominicans anytime soon because they play that shit year round. 
it's like, come on, Canada, do a little bit better. But I mean, I get it. There's Canadian players on both teams just poking fun yeah, at it's how funny. weird shit is. Funny but, how it works, hey, yo. But yeah, that was a pretty quick and done uh, <laughs> Stanley Cup final this year. Um, but now we're moving on to the ugly side of sports, particularly UFC 264. And in the main Ugh. event, if you haven't seen it already, uh, Conor McGregor's fucking ankle exploded. So he lost the fight and proceeded to sit on the ground and tell a dude about how his wife's in his DMs. Um, while he looked like an idiot with an air cast on his leg. Um, and dude, it's funny because I, I saw people going like, did you see Poirier? Like he was like making fun of him doing the walk and shit that he does. And like, yeah. and I seen people like that's low class. And I'm like, it's Conor McGregor, the dude who's usually spouting racist shit or saying I fucked your wife in an interview. But since we're on the topic of class, like, yeah, I want a class. Yeah. He punched a eight, 80 year old in an Irish bar. Yeah, dude, that dude's karma is exactly like I felt bad when that shit happened to uh, Chris Weidman. I even felt bad when it happened to Anderson Silva years ago. But when I seen this dude's fucking ankle snap, boy, did I laugh my fucking dick off. Yeah, and everybody's breaking it down where earlier in the fight, Poirier uh, checked one of Connor's kicks and yep. pointed at him like, you know, because he yep. felt it. And he he was, you know, he was still sticking to that in a post fight interview that he's like, yeah, that's that's when he cracked it. And then of course, you know, he put pressure on it and it just snapped at the end of the round there, which I mean, it was, it was amazing. It happened when it did and he lasted the round, you know, give Connor credit for that. Cause then, you know, Poirier jumped on him and was beaten on him to the, to the end of the round, but he lasted, you know, before the ref had to call it for the, the broken leg. I, I'm sure you saw the, the meme picture that was going around of a picture of Connor with like a pirate's peg leg. Yeah, he's yeah. That was hilarious. <laughs> and, and did you did you catch what Dust the other thing Dustin said in the the, the post uh, press conference? I thought he was actually pretty classy because he even said, "Oh, he was hey, classy man. the whole time." He's like, I but what he said, but he did call him a dirt bag, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> well, yeah, he said he hopes he gets home to his beautiful family. He's like, you don't yep. send death threats to people because Connor was saying, you know, I'm going to bury you and your wife and all this stuff. And yep. that's what he reiterated in his uh, post interview. He was saying, oh, I'm going to fight this dude again because I want to beat the fuck out of him because yep. you don't just say that stuff. And the one reporter was like, well, are you talking about what he said about your wife? Because, of course, Connor was like, oh, your wife's in my DMs. And, and everybody's laughing about that. But, you know, Dustin was like real stern and, and real like realistic about it. He's like, no, man. He's like, my wife and I are good. We're high school sweethearts. That's not a real thing. Like he has no chance. Like that's bullshit. He's yep. just trying to get to me. He's like, but what what makes me want to beat the fuck out of him again and fight him a fourth time is that he's saying he's going to kill us and that you're going to kill somebody. He's like, you can le legitimately literally die in this sport. You just don't say that. That's the lowest class thing you could say as far as words go. And that's why he wants another piece of him. So uh, I'm sure that's, you know, eventually once Connor heals and everything else, I mean, that's probably, you know, my prediction is probably close to a year down the line. But I think it's there is going to be a Connor Dustin four from yeah, all this because I mean, the story the storylines there i mean people you know people are going to watch that out the ass but here's the issue at hand this is the, the fight game is very fickle and i don't mean fans i mean just the way that stuff happens dude what's the chances that poirier is even going to be in the position that he's in in a year i mean he yeah could probably that's a good still, point he could win the title and then get mobbed and lose the fucking thing and still be on, because I mean, let's be honest, in Connor's last four fights, he's one in three. 
like any other person with that type of record would be on the the cusp of like losing their spot in UFC. But because that's the, the thing, huge draw, they're gonna let them stick around. Yeah, and, there's that. And that's bullshit. Because year, dude, years ago they did even guys that were like I remember Vanderlei Silva was a guy who was still a draw, and they were happy to push his ass out the door. Yeah, there, there's that kind of almost WWE pro wrestling aspect underlying kind of thing in, in the UFC in particular. Uh, I don't know, speaking for all of mixed martial arts, but just going with the UFC because, you know, the money talks and you're exactly right. I mean, that's that's like we were talking about the big um, Nate Diaz match of, a few weeks ago where he lost. But he lost in such a good way. People are going to want to see him fight again. And he's going to get put on a, a big match and a big card because it's going to draw. And that's just the reality of it. Well, dude, check this out, because I was thinking about this. So I remember a lot years and years ago, a lot of wrestling fans would kind of get pissed off because they were like, MMA stole our shit. And by that, I mean, they took the pro wrestling way of building up a fight. Okay, like guys talking shit, you know, like creating fake beefs and shit. And it helped build up their business. That's literally how the UFC built themselves into the biggest company in the fight game. Okay, yeah, with the ultimate fighter. But check this out. It's going the opposite way on them now. And I'll tell you why. So in wrestling, the J, if you have a dude that comes out of nowhere, right? And he has charisma and personality and he's good at what he does. What happens to him usually? He starts getting pushed. Exactly. And if he's really a big deal, where does that push kind of stop? When they're what? Um... As far as WWE goes, just re- the the old school wrestling mentality. You how, okay? Th- you have this dude on your hands. You're the Booker, the J. This dude's blowing up. Everybody loves him. He gets fucking tons of press. He's on ESPN all the time. What are you gonna do with him? Oh, so you're saying like he gets pushed and then he gets to the point of somebody like a, a Trips or one of those dudes? No, 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 no. Gonna st- no. What I'm saying is, if you as a wrestling promoter have that talent, you're gonna push him to the moon. And when you push a guy to the moon in wrestling, you give him your biggest title, right? Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Because he's going to be in the main events because you want him to draw crowds and TV ratings and the whole nine. That's how wrestling works in a, in a nutshell, right? I see what you're saying. So UFC, it's, it's real. So if those dudes lose. They're fucked. They can't push them to the title because it's not predetermined. So the wrestling philosophy is backfiring on them now because a guy like Dustin Poirier makes more money fighting a bum or not a bum, but a guy who's lost his last three fucking fights compared to the guy who's the champion in his weight division. Yeah, because of course, Dustin is the number one contender and he put off a possible yep. title shot to fight Connor for a bigger payday, which and you can't blame him there either. No. It's just, again, this is all the nature of the beast. It's how the business is set up. And I'm not blaming the fighters in this. I'm not even blaming Connor. Hey, he could talk him into the building. That's a way hey, right. he's figured out his shit. If he's one in 50 and still selling out every pay-per-view, then you, they'll keep putting him on pay-per-views. You can't get mad at him because someone else keeps giving him a chance, but you could certainly get mad at whoever the fuck keeps giving him the chance. Because that's, that's of course, going to be the whole excuse from this fight is him saying, well, my, my ankle fucking broke. Okay. I mean, that, that'd be like saying, you know, if, uh, if Timmy Johnson fucking didn't blow out his ACL, he would have been Jim Brown. Agreed. Right. You can say he, that with anything. But he got but he hurt did. and he's not. So there we are. Like, it's just yeah. is what it is. But 
man, I'm telling you, I, I, I know a lot of people, I'm not hearing a lot of rumblings about this kind of stuff, but I'm telling you, this is indicative of something that's going to be a major problem for UFC because either guys are going to get pissed like we see it all the time, but it, we don't see it until guys reach a main level. Like a John Jones is like, I ain't fucking doing that for the money you're offering or a, or a George St. Pierre is like, no, I'm retired. I'm not coming back for that shit money. Like you guys are nuts. But meanwhile, well, some, but somebody will happily take a fight with Jake Paul because they're going to get paid. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing with the, the pro wrestling specific WWE comparison with with the UFC's model and where things are and it's just like the WWE when you're not you know they get in those eras or time periods of not creating new stars or relying on the the past names you know it's the same kind of thing you're you're still getting Connor on your card cuz he's selling now but then when he absolutely can't go anymore or those numbers diminish to the point that you're not going to use him and you haven't created new stars that's where you really get fucked and how many dudes aren't being turned into stars by this company? Because right now, currently, all the that's my focus point. And mindset is on a on dude those guys. Exactly. It's it's a balancing act, you know, because they got other issues too. I don't know how you're familiar. You are hey you know, personally with the uh, heavyweight championship, and they're taking it off of Nagano. Well, not taking it off of him. It's but the interim he, he, shit. Yeah, they're doing the interim shit with uh, a big fight coming up that I'm actually interested in with. Um, uh, what's his name? Derek Lewis. Yeah, uh, I want to see I that fight. Who his opponent is. I do too. Dude, there's interesting see- shit going on right now in UFC because we watched. We actually watched the whole cards from the preliminaries to the main event. Um, you know, when we were away, our, our buddies, and uh, it was like really good, man. There's a lot of good fights. And dude, it's it's funny. Uh, I'm actually seeing it at the bottom of my screen in the background. But the new season of The Ultimate Fighter starts tonight. But it's on fucking yeah. ESPN Plus, and which I is, do have. That is stupid as shit to put that show behind a paywall because I'm telling you, we are the examples of this. We basically were as casual of fans of this shit, or we didn't care about it at all, and then we got sucked in by The Ultimate Fighter, and then we were kind of like hardcores for years. We'd watch every fucking show. And then, it, it, like, for me, at least, it's completely filtered off. I, I pay attention to it, but if I don't watch it, I don't really care. Yeah, no, you're making a good point behind the paywall. Like, again, I'm, I'm fortunate I have it. I'll probably check it out. But, yeah, if you don't, then Dude, you don't watch it. So what, what UFC now is not behind a paywall? Just fight nights on ESPN? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's what happens when you do the one, you know, $1 billion plus deal with ESPN and they take over the whole fucking company and again you know me bitching week to week here on what's real about fucking corporate america and i'm certainly not going to get another fucking streaming service to what like i can happily watch something else i don't need that in my life i don't even have peacock and i'm a wrestling fan so yeah why yeah, the fuck all the shit's just that? it is it's just crazy for the consumer and there's just so much oversaturation and bullshit that you have to have there's so many streaming services and plans and everything else. And, and real quick, just because you know me, I like fact checking myself on here. So uh, what we were talking about for the interim UFC heavyweight championship is UFC 265 on Saturday, August 7th, Derek Lewis versus Cyril Gain, who's undefeated 9-0 and as a heavyweight. So that should be a good matchup. And Derek Lewis is always entertaining. He got that bomb. And I think I, it, that's such a disservice to him. Because I think that dude's about to break out into the mainstream and become a huge deal, especially if he was going to beat Nagano. 
but now they're going to prop them up and then we're going to have to watch the inevitable fight of like the belt versus belt shit. And I, that stuff that's great in wrestling because it creates drama. It's terrible in real fucking sports. I, I always hated the co-national champions and football it's so goofy. and shit. Like it's just a way to, to devalue something you've paid a lot of money and spent a lot of time and effort and marketing and everything else to build up a title. It's goofy to me. You're shitting on your own thing. Be- and, and here's the stupid thing. If there's a problem with Nagano right now, you mean to tell me you can't put that fucking fight on the back burner and put something else out there? Like they have 15 divisions, a bunch of fighters, women, men, fucking all over the place. There's nothing else you could do. It's Again, weird. that's what I hate about corporate America, dude. They're multi-billions. They're not paying their heavyweight champion. You know, and of course, I'm just talking on my ass. I don't know the details or anything, but from my perspective, which is easy for me to say, I'll fully say that, but it's like fucking pay the man. Like, yes. You know, how, how much money does the motherfucker want for your billions? You know, he's your heavyweight champ. Dude. He's a draw. Here's the bottom line with this, man. And I'm not saying it's on the exact same level, but it's at least in the same galaxy. Okay. Look at the numbers guys make for boxing. And I know UFC is not on the level of boxing, but it's close enough. I'm saying that if a, if if Floyd Mayweather can make $50 million for a fight, why can't a UFC dude get $20 million or $25 million? You know, it's just... Yeah, I, I think the difference, uh, and I remember hearing you mention it, hey, you know, the, the difference between a boxing card and pay-per-view to an MMA is the fact that boxing cards are pretty much one match shows. Yes. So those main eventers just get paid out the ass where it's a lot more spread out as far as paydays go on MMA cards. Then I feel, you know, I'm sure there's more to it than just that, but I think that's a big aspect and difference. Then maybe it's time that they start reevaluating how they book their entire cards. Yeah. Just, Just an idea. I don't know. Real, real quick, too, as, as we're talking about it, um, did you hear about the Sugar Sean O'Malley fight, the Bantamweight fight? I heard about it, but I didn't. Like, I, the one thing I heard, he's, he had something to say about, like, fighter pay, and I guess, you know, that he got a bonus and was, like, praising that. But I'm like, trust me, if you were a main draw in this fucking company, you wouldn't be praising that little bonus you get. Right, because he's still coming up. But, yes. uh He he had a, a last-minute replacement, and this group, dude, Chris Matano, who wasn't even in the UFC, stepped up with it, you know, like a week or two notice, whatever it was. And so it was his UFC debut, and he's this little guy. I mean, they're bantamweights, but he was, like, well even undersized by Sugar Sean O'Malley. And this dude, hey, Ed, it was a real-life Rocky fight. He just <laughs> kept coming and like, dude, Sugar Sean O'Malley broke the record for punches landed. Like this dude got punched 250 plus times in the face. Jesus. Like Joe Rogan said it, by the third round, he's like, this guy's face looks like roadkill. And that went on to become a pretty popular term for it. But dude, uh, they got fight of the night. So the Chris Matano dude got $75,000 bonus. And he's like, dude, I don't even know what to do with this money. <laughs> like, you know, it was it was a pretty cool little story. And it was, yeah, it was a crazy sh- thing to watch. Spend it on plastic surgery. You're probably going to need it. Bro. At this point, yeah, I was going to say, you're going to need it for your doctor bills. Now, th- th- we're going to stay here in the world of of UFC here before we take our break. This is the last, uh, last topic here uh, of our opening. And uh, I th- th- this just kind of adds to the the stuff that I'm talking about with UFC. So... Ariel Helwani, um, people might know him. He's one of the main 
uh, MMA journalists in the world. Um, he's worked for ESPN for the last few seasons, but or last few years, but he is now exiting ESPN and uh, he's going to move on uh, because obviously ESPN's cutting back big time in what they're paying a lot of their people. Um, but he made an appearance on the Dan Lebitard show with Stu Gotts. And the reason why this is interesting is because Dan Lebitard, somebody that also used to work for ESPN and no longer does, he moved on to do his own venture, which is he took his show from ESPN and continues to basically do the same show that he used to do. But Ariel Hawani was on the show and he wanted to talk about his time at ESPN. They, they wanted to talk to him about his time at ESPN. And he has a rather rocky relationship with Dana White. Uh, the UFC president has never been Hawani's biggest fan, according to the sportingnews.com, most notably kicking him out of UFC 199 and banning him from all future events after Hawani accurately reported about Brock Lesnar's UFC return. The ban was, of course, later lifted. That incident occurred in 2016 while Hawani worked for MMAfighting.com, but White didn't warm up to him after he joined ESPN in 2018. Earlier this year, White called Hawani a douche in response to Hawani's criticism of former MMA fighter Gina Carano and some of the comments she made online. Um, Hawani's three-year contract with ESPN expired in June, and he decided to pursue uh, other opportunities outside of the company. Um, so uh, listen to this shit. So if... But Levitard wanted to know if it was truly Hawani's decision to leave ESPN or if White played a role in his exit. Uh, not completely inconceivable considering ESPN and the UFC agreed to a five-year, $1.5 billion deal in 2018 that gave ESPN the company's entire rights package, which you already mentioned, the Jay. Uh, so here's his response, quote, So I can't answer that question with yes or no, but I will explain it like this. From the moment it was made public that I was joining ESPN, unbeknownst to me on my, on my life, on my kid's life, I didn't know when I was hired by ESPN, I didn't know that they were in talks with UFC. I had no idea. At the time, they really had like one MMA guy on the staff. I thought, all right, the sport is growing. Conor McGregor, they want to beef up the coverage. I had no idea about the other stuff. And then if you recall, and you can go back and look, initially they signed them to a 10-card deal, ESPN Plus only. And then I was like, all right, they're not the sole exclusive broadcast partner. I can live with that. And then it became the whole freaking thing. And then I started to get nervous. So from the moment it was made public in mid-May that I was going to ESPN, and at that time it already had been out that they had signed this deal with ESPN, the UFC did, Dana White tried to get me uh, not to even to make it to my first day. I mean, he raised hell to try and stop me. My first day was June 15th. Tried to stop me the first day. Now, the credit of a lot of executives there, they all said no. They all had my back. They gave me shows. They gave me opportunities. But for the next three years, it was one roadblock after the next. It was one issue after the next. It was all kinds of stuff. I'll tell you a story. I've never shared this story. When I would be at events, Dan and everyone, and let's say the weigh-ins, right? And there's a desk there, and I'm doing something beforehand. But Dana White is coming as a guest in 30 minutes or something. I would have to be escorted out of the venue because per his request, I couldn't be in the vicinity of his line of sight. So here I am on the set of a company that I work for and security, the nicest people in the world who are embarrassed that they had to do this would tell me, I'm sorry, Ariel, we have to walk you out. We know how that makes you, you know how that makes someone feel. 
we have to walk you out of the venue because Dana White doesn't want you in his line of sight. I said, I'll sit right over there. I won't even look at him. I'll look at my phone. What are we doing here? So that's the kind of stuff I had to deal with. I couldn't go backstage. I couldn't do a lot of other stuff. So this kind of shows me uh, that Dana White is not only just an asshole, but he's also like kind of a fraud because he doesn't run anything with UFC. He's a fucking figurehead that they march out there. And this guy is fucking acting like a tyrant because he doesn't like a journalist who's been hired by the company they have a deal with. What the fuck? Yeah. And Hawani's good as an MMA Very. UFC fan. I, I always liked Ariel Hawani. Yes, and uh, yeah, it's 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 just uh, disheartening. And again, you know, not to rant about you know corporations, but like like he even said, once he found out ESPN was buying the whole enchilada, he knew it was going to be trouble. And like so many things, man, we've been through it personally. Hey, with jobs and things like that in in our personal lives in the past, sometimes it's 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 a terrible feeling to be fired or when something doesn't work out or you feel like, you know, you failed at something or wasn't successful. That opens up new doors and can sometimes, especially in hindsight, be the best thing that ever happened to you. And unfortunately, I think that's where Hawaii is cuz he went on to say in the interview that, you know, now now he has a lot more freedom, he's independent, he has other opportunities with a bunch of different, you know, still pretty big companies within the MMA community. So you know, he, he even said in here, quote unquote, it kind of worked out. Uh, but like he said, you know, Dana White probably thinks he ran me out. He's probably, in fact, I know he's celebrating that I'm not there anymore. But I would argue that he did me a massive favor as a result of all his complaints over the past three years. So I think it's one of those things, man. Like, why do you want to be miserable? You're, you're working for the biggest MMA company on the planet. But the other side of it is like you're, you're miserable. So, you know, you want to have that balance. So as long as you could still be doing what you love and are passionate about and be involved in MMA reporting and, and have that freedom and independence, I think Ariel is going to be okay in the future here. Yeah, and I'm telling you, man, it just all signs to me point to karma for something like this. Um, and it kind of goes into what we were talking about, about U- U- UFC's pay or lack thereof and stuff like that. They are leaving a massive opening for another, like, all's, all's fucking Bellator needs to do is get the right investor and UFC is in trouble because now Bellator is going to start making some headway. And, you know, it's exactly and, and keep frustrating the fighters and shit, because we've seen this dude again, not to constantly do the comparison to pro wrestling. We've seen this kind of thing happen before where a company is just such a pain in the ass and so overbearing and has such a bad reputation with people that it fucks them. And it, it might ruin the company because now everybody's going to help out your main competitor. So just something to think about. I know everybody thinks that everything's too big to fall until it's not. So, yeah, I mean, they've done a ton of dumb stuff, like we mentioned, with some of these matchups and fucking over guys. The pay is horrible. They're having trouble with their current heavyweight champion. As we discussed, they did the thing with the uh, fight kits and like forcing them not to have sponsors where fighters made tons of money off sponsors mm-hmm. and fucked them there. This is how they treat one of their top reporters. I mean, it goes on and on. And, and yeah, I don't care how big you are, too big to fail or not. Eventually, things like that are going to crack the foundation and cause you to fall. Exactly. The J, it's asking for trouble to say the least. So we are yep. going to take our very first commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking a brand new movie on Amazon Prime. That's 2021's The Tomorrow War. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. 
Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. Next week on episode 78 of the What's Real podcast, we show you guys why we're money. And why is that, the J? Oh, that's right. Hey, Eel, because it's a full-on review of WWE's next big pay-per-view, Money in the Bank 2021, baby. And the new movie reviews continue on as we go all the way back to 1666 with Fear Street on Netflix. And that's not all because we even let our buddy Herman James do his thing. Yeah, this is Herman James, and I'm here to promote the What's Real podcast Goofs or Goof segment where you'll hear the guys talk about things like Adam Driver singing Conolingus and Trout on meth. Goofs or Goofs, 78. The Jay, why do we let this dude on here? Seriously. But anyway, we got all this and much more right here next week on episode 78 of the What's Real podcast. It is time to get into the brand new Amazon Prime streamed film uh, from 2021 from director Chris McKay, The Tomorrow War. Uh, an ordinary family man named Dan Forrester, played in the movie by Chris Pratt, is recruited by time travelers from 30 years in the future to fight in a deadly war against aliens. Now, this is a movie that has a running time of 138 minutes, so... Um, and and ultimately, I think that was the biggest issue. So now as a, as a little warning, this one's not going to be terrible, but there may be some mild spoilers. So if you don't want anything, time to pause it right now. Okay. Okay. Here we go. So the thing that killed me about the Tomorrow War, dude, is this like a good half hour setup of like him and his family before he really does anything or anything in the movie really happens. And I just this it's too much of a sentimental kind of flick for just being a, 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 a like trying to be, make like an epic sci-fi movie yeah it was and almost like overreaching for the character development i had that note too yes and, and and i normally don't care that much about stuff but in this one it was like get the fucking show on the road already god damn and when they did the movie wasn't bad, okay? It's not like I hated it, especially during a lot of the action sequences. Now, dude, this is something that pissed me off with this one. So you're watching the movie. They go to the future. Long story short, I'll tell you what happens, but basically that Chris Pratt's character comes back to current day. And then the movie continues for like another 35 fucking minutes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like, my dude, I watched this with my girlfriend and... She was like, you know, like when a movie's about to be over, like people's, you know, like they, they oh, I'm going to get a drink or like what. It, yeah, you're just assuming the that the credits store. are rolling. Exactly. I'm right and, with you. And I, and she was doing that. And I picked up my phone and I looked at it and I'm like, uh, hun, this is on for at least another half an hour. And she's like, are you fucking serious? I'm like, yeah. Yep. So that to me was a huge misstep. 
this one was needlessly complicated when it didn't need to be. It didn't allow itself to be fun in a way that it should have been. Like, it kind of reminded me in a lot of ways, if you guys listened to the review that we did uh, not too long ago for Army of the Dead, where there was a bunch of stuff you're kind of expecting and they just never really do it. And it's like, what the fuck is this? What are we, why are we, why am I watching this? Yeah. A lot of wasted time. Absolutely. And, and wasted detail and wasted, you know, fucking character development. Like we don't need this much character development. And the thing that really pissed me off, and this is also a spoiler is whenever Chris Pratt's character goes to the future, he ends up running into this scientist woman who's brilliant and clearly is running the show with what they're doing. Long story short, this is his daughter in the future. And he is dead set on helping her. He doesn't want her to die and all this stuff. And I'm like, and, and she's trying to get him this serum that if he takes back in time with him, none of this shit will ever happen. And I'm like, why is he so concerned with daughter of the future? Because it's not like she dies. He's going to take the shit back and it's going to be fine. And then she's going to live a normal fucking life. You're, you're connected to a character that technically isn't even a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Good. what what the fuck who wrote this fucking thing yeah it was kind of messy as far as that went and then like as far as the actual film goes and it's kind of obvious nowadays depending on the budget and like who's in it and involved in the you know stemming from the pandemic year and everything but i'm, I'm sure you're aware of this hey Ed, um, you did know this was a film made by paramount pictures for a theatrical release but of course they Ugh. they end up selling the movie to amazon for 200 million dollars Jesus, I can't believe they paid that much money for this fucking thing. <laughs> yeah. It's would have bloated. Like, I don't mean this like in the sense that it's a horrible movie. It's not a good movie, but what a bloated piece of shit this is. Yeah. Like, it's completely unnecessary. I will give them credit for one thing that I thought was cool. And I usually hate CGI like a motherfucker. But the the creatures in this looked cool. I liked the look of them, and I thought that was interesting. But it's all done with zero context. Like, you don't know why they look like this. You have no idea. It's just like aliens. They look like this, and that's it. So even that was kind of lazy to me. And I'm like, you fucking screwed up the one cool thing you did. Yeah, because, you know, you go into it thinking it just might be the traditional popcorn action flick, you know, especially if you know that it was going to be a theater one and stuff like, you know, just your traditional summer movie that you don't need like all the intelligent stuff. And it's not, you know, like we always say, we, we know it's not going to be an Oscar winner. But then again, it's it's another thing we preach is like, you know, the you know treat the audience with intelligence like we're not idiots like we want to pick up on some things and, and like you mentioned a lot of it was just bloated there's a lot of plot holes and a lot of cheesiness that was overboard in comparison to the good stuff with like some of the effects and some of the action sequences you know um you know some of my more more positive bullet points hey you know were of course uh, jk simmons is always good um I, I think he was on not in it enough though not in it enough at all and i think he was on tyrannosaurus rex sperm because he's uh i think in his late <laughs> 60s and he was jacked to high hell it, it's the classic hollywood thing which i would love doing that too like okay i'm gonna be in a big budget action movie i'm gonna spend the next six months with a personal trainer eating grilled chicken and broccoli and get a 
get on TRT and get jacked to the gills. Um, Sam Richardson was good as Charlie, like the black dude that was the sidekick of Pratt. Uh, Betty Gilpin dude. was the same as J.K. Simmons. She's good in her role. You know, that's the chick from uh, Glow in the hunt. I thought she she was terrible to me. Well, she I'm but like, she wasn't in it. Hired her. That's what I was going to say. No, I'm, I was like, dude, they hired her to make faces. That's all yeah, she and just like, kind of be sad. his his wife, like, like the it was like almost you know going backwards to the Me Too movement of just like his his wife is just you know the the fucking woman making like the, faces, like the, you said. Yeah, it's like oh yeah, honey, I gotta go save the world, so go do some fucking laundry. And <laughs> yeah. I'll see you in a week. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's <laughs> what it felt like. Yeah, and dude, this this is the thing that really killed me. So. I'm not the biggest Chris Pratt fan, okay? But I will say this. I thought his character, and he did a really good job in his role in the Jurassic Park movies. Like, I think that's a good character for him. He fits it. It's It works well for him. It doesn't feel like a reach or anything like that, okay? Now, I think people are reading him the wrong way because I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, dude, you know what? I said this to my girlfriend. I'm like, and let me see what you think about this, Jay. And you tell me if I'm wrong. Sure. And it's okay if I'm wrong. Of I course. just want to know your opinion. Doesn't this come across like a movie, for example, that like The Rock couldn't do? And he was like, ah, I can't make that one. They're like, all right, uh, Chris Pratt then. No, I mean, like, I, it, I would agree with that because that's that's one of my notes, honest to God, was the fact that it, it was just too straight of a character for Chris Pratt. Like he had none of that star Lord, like quips or like you said, even the dude, the character he plays in the Jurassic park movies has that sense of humor. Like it was maybe here a tiny, tiny bit, but nowhere near enough that that was appropriate for, for a Chris Pratt role. I'll say that with you. Yeah, They, and, and they don't, it doesn't, the movie doesn't help him either because like they make him like a science teacher and he's kind of like a wise crack. And, and at that point, the, the character was working for me. But then once he gets sent into the future and he's like this fucking like like fucking Marine Supreme. Yeah, because it's like, like from from work. his past experience, they just instantaneously convert him to like team leader. And then it's yeah, just like, if boom. you notice. Like, because at the beginning of the movie, like when they bring him in and they put the thing on his arm and they're like, you were Sergeant da 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 and the whatever. And he's like, yeah, 15 years ago. Like, I ain't that dude anymore. But then as soon as the movie happens, it's like, oh, I remember how to do everything. <laughs> yeah. Fucking kill everything. Save everything. I'm like, this does not work for him. Now you put the rock in that role. I can see how the rock snaps into it. And then he's like, you know, <laughs> dude, okay. I got to bring this up because this is one of the things that had me like rolling my eyes. So towards the end of the movie, there's a scene with Chris Pratt and J.K. Simmons where J.K. Simmons plays his dad and he's trying to kill this creature and it's coming for him. And Pratt's like off to the side and it's like this, the moment of truth, like is J.K. Simmons going to die or not? And then Chris Pratt jumps on this thing's back and I'm like, (laughs) What the f- like Ray Mysterio couldn't fucking do? Where did this this dude's in, they're in the the tundra and he somehow ran the speed of this alien and jumped on its back with no problem. And keep in mind the alien has like these tentacle things that shoot spears at people 
that are totally made to stop shit like that from happening. It's just, it's fucking mind bogglingly stupid. That's what I was saying like with you, like fucking with our intelligence. It ways. Yeah. It's like, again, yes. we're, we're like lifelong moviegoers. Like we'll put past some stupid cheesiness and plot holes yes. if everything else is good. But then it gets to a point where you roll your eyes like, all right, come on, dude. That's just overboard. Like, we're not the dudes that in a scene where they're talking science, we're going to be like, actually, it's 3.2 yeah, exactly. megaliters to do this, not 4.2. Like, no, this is just common denominator shit when you watch a movie. Like, it seems like, and dude, this <laughs> is the best explanation I can give for this movie. And I don't know if you agree with this or not. Doesn't it feel like a director came in and made the part at the beginning and then another director got hired to do all the action shit. And then it was like another dude that filmed all the shit. Yeah, they're doing like the, the CGI Simmons. sequences or something. Yeah, yeah. it's like, dude, it's did all over seven directors get fired? Because this feels like you made four different movies and we're like, fuck it. Put them together as a two hour and 18 minute movie. Fuck it. I don't care. Dude, I got to throw this it's at weird. you just before we get too far away from it. Because what you were just saying when you were like, you know, don't insult our intelligence. Like we don't have to know the details of the science stuff like you were ranting there. The the yeah. IMDB D page has like a goose thing and it literally says what you're talking about. So that's why I started laughing. It says when the female white spike is transported to deep swell nine, a monitor displays her vital signs. The SPO two peripheral oxygen saturation is shown as one Oh two percent. SPO two is the percent ratio of oxygenated hemoglobin <laughs> to total hemoglobin. It's like, what the fuck? Well, the J I, that exactly what he explained ruined the whole movie for me personally. <laughs> yeah. but, I, that I mean, is so, on. that like, is so funny. That nailed you, what you were saying. It's, it's like, dude, I could save you the fucking algebra. Uh, just the jumping on the back of the monster. <laughs> yeah. fucking stupid. You don't need to do that. Like, yeah. It's just, That's dude, funny. I don't like, and dude, it's kind of, it reminds me of our forever argument when it comes to wrestling. The reason why we're so hard on the WWE is because you have all the money, all the resources, all the fucking talent, all the writers, all the fucking everything you need to make this good. And you don't. And that's exactly what this movie is. You had a, a cast. You had $200 million. You had fucking all this shit. And it's like, this is what you fucking made? What are you doing? It's goofy. It, it's frustrating. It's like... I thought this was just going to be like a bloated, fun summer movie. And instead, it was like a movie that was like, it's when you meet somebody that's dumb as shit, but they think they're smart. That's the Tomorrow War. Yeah, and if if you take that two hour and 18 minute runtime and cut all the bullshit and it's an hour and 45 minutes, you might be talking about what you're talking slick, about. Yep. Like quick moving, like boom, boom, boom. Do You could honestly cut out most of the shit at the beginning of the movie, because like you said, they want to do this big character development scene. And dude, here's the thing. Why the fuck his wife is basically annoying, like, like barely in the movie. And it's like annoying every time she pops up, but somebody thought like, I have an idea. We'll have this fucking nerd in his class. They'll bring up something about volcanoes. And at the end of the movie, we'll completely bring it all the way back. And I'm like, so let me get this right. The dudes that went with the government to the fucking future and somehow made it back without getting killed, they have to fucking talk to a 16-year-old kid about volcanoes because no one else is an expert except for this one fucking kid. 
I'm pretty sure someone in the military would be able to tell you about fucking volcanoes, guys. Yeah, it it's no a sense. goofy thing to do. I get why you do it, but I don't understand why you felt the need to do it here. It's it's weird. As I, as I always counteract your negative rants for something you don't like, just to point out, was there anything, you know, closing out the review that you did like? I thought the creatures were cool. Um, I Dude, this is just the, the way for me to sum this movie up. The scene where they have to capture the queen, nothing makes sense. Like even when stuff's like people are pulling on these wires and you don't, you can't really tell what anyone is doing and why they're doing it. So it's all goofy. Um, I sadly, man, I don't have a lot of positive stuff to say about this one. I thought the monsters kind of look cool, but this one fucking fumbles and bumbles and stumbles until the credits roll at the end. And it's not something I would recommend. And it's certainly nothing I would sit through ever again. <laughs> yeah, d- d- definitely too long. That, that was the thing with me. I liked some of the action sequences. Uh, as you mentioned, the aliens were were cool. Uh, J.K. Simmons, not in it enough, but always good to pop up, especially when he's jacked to high hell. Dude, I was really disappointed because like you said, I thought Sam Richardson was good in it. And I'm like, they barely give him anything. I'm like, come yeah. on, guys. He's the comic relief. Let him do his thing. Yeah, do some nope. more shit. They, and, and they totally build it up like he's like this goofy character that's going to redeem himself. And the way he does it, it's so lazy and haphazard that I'm like, well, why did you even bother, guys? Like, yeah, he could have just died. And then you'd be like, ah, oh, poor guy. He was funny. Yeah, good, and that's the end of it. Good try, Charlie. Exactly. Like that would have been cool. Like, or the perfect thing would have been to have him do the, what JK Simmons was going to do towards the end where it's like, I'm going to bite the bullet and get killed to save everybody type thing. And they didn't do it with anybody really. So I'm like, okay, well that's a trope that they could have went with. It would have worked here, but you know, it just is what it is. So I will ask you for this. The J, do we have a tagline for this one? So I was prepared hey, because you know, there is no official tagline, but I found a, a just, you know, it's basically a quote from the movie that we could shout out here because it sums it up. We are you 30 years in the future. We are fighting a war. Our enemy is not human and we are losing. So since there's no official tagline, the J says that should be the tagline, a quote from the movie. I'm confused then because I found another one. It's corny, but it, it'll do the job. The fight for tomorrow begins today. There you go. Yeah, maybe so, I just didn't have the, the right thing pulled up. And I got to say this real quick, summing it up. Hey, you know, what do we know? Because the Tomorrow War is doing so good, supposedly, because they don't, you know, the numbers are skewed in comparison to like theater, you know, yeah. like those numbers. But uh, supposedly yep. it's doing so well on Amazon Prime streaming that a sequel is proposed. Oh, Jesus. So there so, you go. Okay, the J, you know how we do it. Five-star rating scale. What are you going to give the Tomorrow War? I'm giving it two, hate you. Same for me. Two stars. Pretty underwhelming, uh, to say the least. And uh, I'm not looking forward to a sequel. And unfortunately, <laughs> uh, the storyline of this one, they can make 500 sequels to something like this. So, uh, And I wouldn't be surprised if they do. So, I'm with you. I'm not, but that, would not be that interested in a sequel. So that was the Tomorrow War. We are going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, me and the Jay are going to be talking about the two Fear Street movies that recently prepared, uh, premiered on Netflix. And it is 1994 and 1978. 
both from 2021, by the way. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Hey, Yins, guys, this is the J from the What's Real podcast for our official sponsor, Church Hill Pictures. Church Hill Pictures is a Pittsburgh-based film production company founded by Damiano Fusca and Jared Bajoris. Check out churchhillpictures.com for all kinds of information about the company and their work. The website contains dozens of videos, including short films, movie previews, comedy sketches, the entire documentary UCW, The Greatest Show You Never Saw, exclusive independent pro wrestling matches, links to view or purchase their two feature films, Deference and the Unsung, the entire history of the What's Real podcast, the Film City podcast, and so much more. Check out churchhillpictures.com today and also check out the official Churchill Pictures YouTube channel. Search for Churchill Pictures and please subscribe. Also follow Churchill Pictures on all social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Churchill Pictures, picture the possibilities. to the first film of this segment. This is kind of uh, two of three parts, basically. Uh, the third part will not be out till the 16th, so we'll tell you a little bit later about how that's going to break down for the show. So first up is Fear Street Part 1, titled 1994. Uh, this is directed by Lee Janik, um, who people might remember did a movie in 2014 called Honeymoon, um, but... That's really all he did, or all she did, I'm sorry, prior to this. So uh, in 1994, uh, literally, a group of teenagers discovers the terrifying events which have haunted their town for generations are all connected and that they may, may be the next targets. That's a pretty simple breakdown of this one. But the gist of the movie is we head back to 1994 and uh, it's funny because it's surrounding a place called the Shady Side Mall, and there's an area locally to us called Shady Side. So I, I got a kick. I out thought of that. Of that. Yeah, I thought of that as well. Now, my major problem with this one, and this is very strange, uh, this has a running time of about 107 minutes. Okay, and the first half an hour of this movie is a fucking mess, and the reason why is because, dude. I felt like somebody was, it's like uh, somebody was solely determined to get their favorite 90s song in this movie. And it was like, girl walks into a door, fucking 90s songs playing. But she only for like eight minutes then or so, like, you know, eight it, seconds yeah, or so. It wasn't, there was like yeah, snippets and, of these songs. And dude, in the first 30 minutes, they play 57 songs. It's it's annoying <laughs> as fuck. It's like, who did this? Like, you're being overindulgent, dude. What is fucking going on? But I will say, after that half hour kind of goes by the wayside, the movie does get pretty interesting, and it's kind of fun. Um, it's There's a little bit, like, if, you, if you're a fan of Stranger Things, you're going to kind of like this because it's like the, the local kids working out a mystery thing. And now I want to clear something up because I know a lot of people were confused about this before this came out. Now, this is a series from uh, author R.L. Stein, who's most well known for Goosebumps, which is kind of like horror for preteens and teenagers, like young teenagers. Um, Fear Street is not that. This is fully for adults. 
Um, there's plenty. This is of his. They call it the YA novels, young adult novels. And the movie is not really young adult. It would probably be rated R. Yeah, because um, I I was thinking to maybe watch these with my kids. I was going to watch them first, and I was like, yep, not old enough yet for those. Yes. Um, I thought the characters in this one were pretty good. I mean, they they did try and go a little bit outside of the box with some of them. Like the main love story in this one is with two girls, which that I didn't feel like that felt forced. I felt like that worked in the context of what they were doing uh, because they make that kind of a uh, like a problem in the the theme of the movie. You know what I mean? Between the mm-hmm. two characters. And I, and I thought that that worked very well. Um, for a whole cast of very young actors and stuff, I thought it also worked pretty well. They had a pretty decent rapport with me. Uh, like everybody in the movie was pretty good. I wasn't very familiar with any of these people. The only one that I really knew of going into it was Maya Hawk, who is Ethan Hawk and Uma Thurman's daughter, uh, who's yeah, that, also in Stranger Things. That kind of had the, the vibe of uh, Drew Barrymore from Scream. The, the yes. very first scenes, you know, absolutely. And dude, I thought that they did a pretty cool job of like, it's weird. And this is going to sound strange. I, don't, I think you'll understand. Uh, so the killer in the movie is a person in like a skull costume. Uh, and I like the fact that they made this character kind of like low rent and stupid because it's it, when you find out what's really happening. They did it on purpose. It's it's a sleight of hand thing. So I thought that was pretty cool because I was even thinking to myself like, man, if you're going to make a slasher, the best thing you could do is fucking put a kid in a skull costume. That's pretty fucking lazy. And like, dude, this isn't going to work because the killer needs to look cool. But it totally works in the concept of that. And like, dude, it's funny because what we were talking about the tomorrow war in the last segment, like we kind of expected like this fun thing. And it really wasn't that. Uh, Fear Street, I didn't really know what to expect, but it kind of turned into that. Like, it's just a fun little like horror story. I, I enjoyed that. That that was my highlight of Fear Street as a whole so far, you know, doing the double feature here on what's real of parts one and two of the trilogy is the story of where it goes. And like, like we always say, again, these things I say ad nauseum on the podcast from week to week, no other way to put it that. I love going into things and not knowing shit about it, you know, other than being familiar with the Fear Street books. But as far as this plot and things like that, because it takes you on a ride. And I'm like, where are they mm-hmm. going with this? Because I was right with you, Had You nailed it, of course, with like the kind of cheesy version of the Skull Killer. And I'm like, are they serious with this? You know, I'm hoping this goes somewhere deeper. And it definitely did. And that's what I really liked about it. And, you know, we'll go into, you know, of course, the the further plot and the second part and everything where it gets deeper and deeper. But yeah, that was definitely the highlight was the roller coaster ride of the story here. And it's kind of neat in the fact that this is technically the last one and you're, but it's presented in the story as the first one. Okay. Because if you notice this one's 1994, then there's 1978, then there's 1666. So with this, and again, guys, mild spoilers. We're not going to ruin the movie for you, but we might tell you some details about things you might not want to hear. So if you're really looking forward to this, maybe it's time to pause it now. Spoiler okay. warning. Yes. So the thing that I thought was neat about this, and normally I wouldn't like something like this, is 
So these this group of kids is getting stalked by this killer, this fucking kid in a, the skull costume. But as the story opens up and you find out that this has a lot to do with potentially an origin story about a witch, at one point in the movie, so you got the skull mask killer, you have this other killer that is the one that you will find out is the main killer in 1978. And then you have the witch who's clearly going to be the 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 villain in 1666. So you're seeing all the villains in this movie before you even know what happens in the other ones. And there's even I some additional cool. kind of side villains too with like the chick that cuts herself. Yes. And I and liked like a lot that. of that stuff. Like it feels like there's a lot of moving parts in this one. And as I was watching it, I'm like, man, they're going to fuck this up really bad. But the moving parts kind of fit in where they were supposed to go. And I was like, oh, Okay, fucking good. You know, I'm pleasant, pleasantly surprised by that. I wasn't yeah, good. It. Good storytelling. Uh, I want no. to throw this at you. Hey, because you, know, you mentioned the cast. Uh, did you happen to catch the Brian Cranston limited show? Um, I'm brain farting on the channel. It is offhand. I think it was, you know, Showtime, one of the premium channels, Showtime or Stars. It wasn't HBO, but it was Brian Cranston's latest show where he was the, the judge. I didn't. I'm, I know what it is, but I, I did not watch it. So I just bring it. The bottom line is I just bring it up because Benjamin Flores, the plays Josh, the, the black kid, okay. the brother. Yep. He's, he's really he good. was in that and he's really good. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that for this, but, yeah. but really good. Like you, you already mentioned at the top, very good young cast overall here. And a fairly unknown one. Like I'm not saying exactly complete yeah. unknowns, but they don't all have breakout roles and shit like that, you know? Um, the kids work together very well. Um, they managed to hold the story together and the, the humor in this one was really good too. Uh, there's a scene that this had me cracking the fuck up. So there's a scene where they basically devise this plan to kind of capture the witch or set her up. And the night before they do it, they're obviously worried about how this is going to turn out. So you get this, you get the weirdest love scene I've ever seen <laughs> something like this. <laughs> Where so you have a group of five kids or teenagers, I should say, there's a guy and his girlfriend, a dude and his sister and the sister's ex-girlfriend. And what happens on the night before, because they're all worried they're going to die. It's like the two girls hook up with each other, the fucking girl's brother and the hot chick that he's obsessed with. They have their fucking thing. And then the boyfriend has this love scene with himself. And it's like they all come together after it happens and they're all like disheveled. And the dude's like, Jesus, did all you guys go to pound town? And then they were kind of like, yeah. And he's like, so did I. And then it cuts <laughs> yeah. to the yeah, next that was scene. hilarious. That was a place that I was not expecting this movie to go. They went there. They did it for laughs and it really worked well. I was really surprised by it. And I thought it, like I was fucking laughing my ass off during that scene. So I was glad they put it in there. And dude, we talk about this a lot when it comes to horror movies where they don't really know when to be funny and when to cool that out for the tone of the movie and stuff. And I thought that was a great, scene because it's like they gave you some comic relief and they kind of put you in the shoes of the characters like this is their last moment to take a breath before the shit hits the fan and it's the same way pretty much for you as the viewer and i thought that that really showed you that like they understand the tone 
and what they're kind of doing with this one. And it, and it worked really well. Yeah, that goes right in with what I was going to mention next. Actually, hey, you know, in in conjunction as kind of the opposite with our previous film review with the Tomorrow War, the pacing of this was was really well done. And like you said, it you know they had the comic relief at the right time. The plot was really good. Things were were playing out really well paced. And then of course, again, like we said, non non specific spoilers. But then the gore and as you mentioned, the shit hitting the fan comes and it's like right when you're ready for it. And it's, there's some really solid gore and violence as well here, which you need and for a dude, movie like this, of course. I actually wanted to give them a little bit of credit for this one, too. And it's really weird because of something that I'm going to tell you about 1978. Um, but I was really impressed in this one with the style um, they like, dude, that scene in the grocery store is lit. That so was cool. fucking cool. Yeah. It makes, it you. makes Good the call. creatures, it makes like the killers and shit look cool. It hides the right stuff. It shows you the right stuff. And I felt like they kind of did that throughout the movie. Like, uh, there's a scene at the beginning where, uh, because of something that happens in the town, uh, the, the students from the one school are required to go to this thing. And it's basically like a vigil. And the girl sees her ex-girlfriend with some guy and she gets pissed off. Well, she's in a band costume and she's like holding this box with her. And she goes and sits in that hallway where she like it, it precludes the scene kind of like where her and her ex-girlfriend are going to have this like confrontation. But just the fact that the girl is in a band costume, the other girl is in a cheerleading costume. They're in this weirdly lit back hallway. I'm like, there's a lot of tension to detail here. And it, it just really stands out as like, like she's there in this full out band costume. The girl's in the cheerleader thing. It's lit really cool and shit. Like, I like that. I think that, you know, when you're watching a movie and you know this to Jay, you're somebody that, that, that makes movies. The visual appeal is very important with a movie. And I'm of not course. always talking about yeah. like the prettiest actress or something. You want things to look cool or, you know, there's a reason why a, a film noir looks the way it looks or why a horror movie looks the way it looks or why, you know, Dario Argento used crazy lighting and, and wild fucking camera angles and stuff like it's, it's a visual medium. So like play with that stuff. It's pretty. That's what I was going to mention. Like, like, yeah, so many forms of art. It's all in the details. You know, yes. and and the, and the more details you have and nail, the better off it's going to be. And it's, it goes in exactly what you're saying visually as well. Now, I've been giving this one a lot of credit, but I also have to kind of put in here, too. That first 30 minutes is pretty rough. It's like nails on a chalkboard to kind of get through it. And it's coming from somebody that lived through the 90s. And I'm already very familiar with the music. It just feels like shoehorning a ton of it in there, like I said. Well, yeah, like you said, it was kind of it makes it weird. I was like, music video e or something. Like yes. definitely, and I saw people online. I mean, they you know, as I always say, online everybody complains about everything. But I did notice, and you know, some of my friends on social media that had watched it talking about it. A lot of people were specifically mentioning the the kind of quick '90s music of so many different songs like that. So I think that's definitely an obvious glaring kind of issue that a lot of and people picked up on. Even though the movie is fun and they do a pretty good job with a lot of the stuff, it's still not really reinventing the wheel. Um, I was really happy to see them go into a gore territory in the movie where a certain character gets their head put in a bread slicer, which is a fucking amazing scene. Um, that was cool. 
But the thing is, there is some disjointedness in the movie. It, it, it flows pretty well, but there's some odd decisions being made here. And again, like I said, this isn't like an all-time classic or anything like that. It was just pretty good. So I, I certainly, uh, you know, wasn't disappointed in it. I'll say that much. And it, and it had me looking, looking forward to watching the next two. Yeah, I, I agree, man. I'm pretty much in concurrence as as usual. Not not a big difference. I'm just with you there. Uh, I was really into it as far as it, you know, like you mentioned, it didn't reinvent the wheel, but I was happy that they did do something different. You yeah. know, uh, again, yep. it's tough. Like we always say, I kind of bumble just because it's tough to, with the non-spoiler kind of review we're trying to do. But yeah, I mean, like again, just going to the overall plot and kind of how they're doing all that. And, and of course, all the, th- the th- eventually three movies here, this trilogy, trilogy event on Netflix are going to interweave appropriately is, is really cool. And it only makes sense at this point to Jay that I'm going to go to my tag team championship partner in podcasting for the tagline. So what do we got for this one, Jay? I had a couple on this one. So uh, the one here on the Netflix movie poster just simply says face the evil. Yep. Uh, and then there's a better one uh, that I had stumbled upon that is three movies, three weeks, one killer story. Fear Street. Okay. I like that, actually. So nice. uh, and as we do here on the show, we go with a five star rating scale. I'm going to give this one three stars. OK, I was close to three. I'm, I'm into it a little more. I think I went with three and a half for it. OK, so. Let's see how we fare with the second film. Now, this is part two of Fear Street. This is titled 1978. Again, it's from 2021, and it's directed by Lee Janik. Uh, In 1978, two rival groups at Camp Nightwing must band together to solve a terrifying mystery when horrors from their town's history come alive. So this one, you know, is still intertwined with the witch, um... But there, this one comes across more like a slasher film. That's kind I was going to say it has the Friday, yep, Friday the Thirteenth vibes with the the villain and the camp setting. But with this one, and now oh, I should also mention too, uh, Sadie Sink stars in this one. You might remember her from Stranger Things. She's the redheaded girl. Um, this also has a few more people in it, but again, not a really advanced cast okay there's Dude, only a couple Sa- sadie sinks uh her character ziggy's older sister's hot as shit emily Rose. yes she is i thought the same fucking thing <laughs> and i would go on to say something else but nobody else is gonna get it so i'll mention that to you off the air because she looks like somebody that we know um oh, gotcha. but, but it was uh it was pretty wild uh but yeah i and thought they, she was they, really hot very much so and uh they kind of Basically, and this is the weird part here. So at the beginning of the movie, they, and I forget for the life of me what it was, but they start playing another fucking song from the 90s. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. and, and they show this woman in this apartment and it looks like 1978. I'm like, why the fuck are they playing? The song's from the 90s. What are you doing? Then you realize that you're currently in 1994 as we it's have the, the girl and her brother show up from the original film. Uh, to meet with a character that would basically be the Sadie Sink character of Christine Berman. And she's like, okay, let me tell you about what happened in 1978. Flashback to 1978. This is the movie. Uh, She's clearly the lead character. They're kind of establishing who everybody is in the movie. Uh, And you can tell that this movie is very much influenced by stuff like Friday the 13th and Sleepaway Camp just from a lot of the look 
of the movie alone. Okay. And I'm talking about shirts and what people wear and, and the whole nine. Um, but the thing is with this one is to me, it's very disjointed. It's pretty, I don't want to say lame's the right word for it, but it doesn't really seem to know what it wants to do. And my biggest problem with this one, and this was something that I didn't foresee happening at all when I saw the trailer for this. This movie feels to me like a fucking American horror story. Everything, like the whole look of it being 1978 and they're at a camp from some, everything feels so incredibly manufactured. You do not feel like you're watching a movie in the 70s. That's a good call. It's too, and we, we talked and said that about the, the 1984 um American horror story season that it, yep. that's the one thing about it was it was just too glossy. They didn't nail the retro kind of look. Yep. And that's exactly like, this does not feel like you're watching something that's supposed to be in 1978. This feels like a modern day movie where everybody's like, like maybe you ever seen a movie like where they're like, Oh man, you go into the big seventies party tonight. And it's like, yeah, man, I'm going. And then they go and they dress up like fucking people from the, that's how this whole movie feels to me. And, and then of course, th- like the other side of it is like teenagers currently watching this on Netflix, like would have no idea. Like this looks cool. You know, <laughs> like us, yeah. us old asses that I was fucking born in 79, you know, or like, yeah, yeah. it's just, it's too glossy to be retro. Yeah. Throws it off. And, and there's too much like, and here's just the thing that people don't realize. So we have a whole decade of seventies movies to go back and watch if we want. Right. And here's a major problem that people don't realize with stuff like this. Everybody in this movie is too pretty. Everyone, every single, even the main girl who they try to like dumb her look down. They're all too, people's skin is too good. People, you know, there's not enough fat people that like that shit <laughs> yeah. sticks out like a sore thumb when you watch 70s movies. People had shitty hair. People had bad complexions, bad teeth, the whole nine. And this everything is too glossy. Every fucking thing. Even the gore in this one isn't anything to really freak out about. The I hate how they create the origin of the killer. I think yeah, it's, I was gonna mention it's, that it's very stupid. I'm like, like not like you think you're seeing this killer character, but in reality, you're just seeing a character in the movie develop into what this is supposed to be. I didn't like that at all. Um, it really like it. It doesn't like how I said in the first movie they were really good at de- like detecting when to to use stuff for tone. They threw all that shit out the window in this one. None of that makes any sense. It's pretty lackluster in my opinion uh due to it doesn't really work very good as a slasher it doesn't really work very good as the ner- the the witch story where the 1994 one i thought was like clicking on all cylinders with that stuff this one was super clunky and i it just feels like the 78 thing kind of like they they were so focused and trying so hard on that that they forgot that they kind of need to make a complete movie yeah, some some of my notes, hey, you know, the the kind of like it's tough to describe, like the the child mask kind of character that pops up. That was pretty cool and creepy. I did like that. This. I thought that was cool, but they don't do it enough. That, it's not. It's like yeah, boop, 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 done. That's it. Yeah, I mean that was cool though. And then there there was some funny stuff when they're down in the latrine. Oh yeah. That was, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's not all for not. Like, I don't want to make it sound like it. Well, there wasn't funny parts and stuff. There were characters right. that I got a kick out of and things. And, dude, here's another thing that people don't bring up. 
If this movie was happening in 1978, how more off color would it be? Yeah, right. For for a lot of things, too. And I'm not yeah. just talking about like somebody should just be blatantly racist in it. I don't mean like that, but like they this it there's just so much stuff in this that just breathes and screams this is not in the 70s to me. I agree. And that that's why I think that the the biggest positive I think out of this one, uh, and again, it was it was entertaining enough. You know, I don't think we're shitting all over it. I think we're making the right call on what we're talking about. But but it still is the the storyline, the interweaving storyline that's going on. You know, I, I was yes. still interested in that. You know, like where it was going. So that kind of kept me into it too. And dude, let's just be honest here, okay? This is my feeling. I don't know if you agree with me on this. Did you? Which one did you like better, ninety four or seventy eight? Uh, the first one. Me too. I gave that three and a half, so you'll see what I give this. But yeah, yes. I like that one better. I felt the same way. And dude, going into it, I was like, yo, the 78 one looks the best. I know. It, I was geeked because, you know, it's the, the Friday the 13th. Like, we, we love returning to any camp, you know, if you do it right. Because it's the nostalgia kind of thing of just the old camp movies, you know, like we were saying. But, and dude, but I'm with you. It's like the atmosphere didn't nail it. What time of year are we watching it? It's fucking summer. And that's what this is yeah, like. Exactly. That's when I like to watch all that kind of stuff. So uh, it, yeah, had a lot, it had a lot going for it, man, but it just, it, it strikes out too much. And that's ultimately the issue. Like I thought that like, like, dude, the thing is too, like the, her, her older sister character, the supremely hot girl does not look like she's from the seventies to me. She just looks like a preppy fucking girl. Now it's weird. Like even hairstyles and shit. It's not, they didn't do a good enough job with that stuff. And it just felt way more clunky and way more tacked on. And I think they were just super worried about presenting it as 1978 when they kind of forgot that they need to still make it a compelling story. And it's a little frustrating whenever the second movie is not at least on par with the first one. So that's kind of where you're at with this one. So I think they could bring it back on 1666, but I'm not going to lie from the very jump. I thought the 1666 one looked the worst out of the three. I hope I'm yeah, wrong. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Cause that's kind of where I'm at. You know, I'm in, like I said, I'm into the the main storyline that is intertwining the trilogy here. So to, to see it, you know, to climax is going to be fun. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully they, 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 they nail the crescendo in the third one. So we shall see. All right, the J, do we have a tagline for this one? Because I couldn't find one. Yeah, so it makes sense because the tagline, um, you know, I read the one cool one that was basically for the whole trilogy. But as I mentioned, for part one, 1994, it was face the evil. And for part two, it's find the truth. Okay, I got you. So I'm sure 1666 will have a little tagline like that for, you know, the, the specifics of the the part. All right, the J, here's the moment of truth. Five-star rating scale. What are you going to give 1978's Fear Street? I'm going this one two and a half, a whole star rating less than the first one. Same here. I'm going to go with two and a half. Uh, I, this one just, and I watched them days apart, um, and I was just really disappointed in this one compared to what I thought it was going to be. It's not terrible. It's not great. That's, That's what I was going to mention, too. Yeah, like, don't get us wrong. Overall, uh, we're just breaking it down, but it was still still entertaining, and it's still a really cool concept for, for Netflix. So that is it for our double review of Fear Street 1994 and 1978, and we have a little surprise for you guys. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and whenever we come back, me and the Jay are going to be selling 
celebrating, I should say, not selling. We're not selling you shit. I was going to say, what are we selling? I didn't know about that. I ain't uh, selling shit. We will be celebrating the 25 years of something in the world of professional wrestling. So if you like our wrestling coverage, stick around. This is going to be a lot of fun. So we'll be back right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. This is it from the What's Real Podcast for Height Apparel, your one-stop shop for fashion retail. For one-of-a-kind shopping experience, stop by Height Apparel. Founded by Eric Walker, our business brand is based around people who are of average height, 5'10 and under. We will have the season's greatest fashion picks. Whether you're on the lookout for men's clothing or accessories, stop by and browse our latest collection. That's Height Apparel, H-Y-G-H-T, apparel.com. Again, that's HeightApparel.com. And we're back, and we kind of uh, did a tease for it before we went to the break. But uh, as of July, I believe it was 7th. Is that correct, the Jay? July 7th of 1996, uh, Bash at so the Beach. So we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of the creation of the NWO, the New World Order of Professional Wrestling. So... This would all start in 1996, and this was pretty interesting because I remember this pretty vividly. So uh, the NBA playoffs were going on at the time. So Nitro was, you know, they they got cut to an hour, and the show was at 7 o'clock. So they, they started before the basketball did. So as wrestling fans back in 1996, we would watch that and then obviously switch over to watch Raw at 9 o'clock or 8.57 at the time, whatever they were doing. Um, and one week there was just a match going on, uh, in the ring and out of nowhere in the crowd shows to be none other than Razor Ramon. That's the name we knew him as at the time he gets in the ring, kind of cuts a short promo and there, there had been the Monday night war going on at the time, which most fans were familiar with. And he finishes saying, uh, you want to go to war? Well, we're going to take you to war. So it kind of looked like the WWF was invading the company. Even though we knew that wasn't exactly the case, this seemed extremely real to start. Yeah, that's and the exact word. I don't know word. if you have any memories of that specific night, the Jay, but it's it's pretty. And it's weird because I've gone back and watched that since. It's abundantly clear that that whole thing was planned, but we didn't think so in 96. We thought something was weird. That's what I was starting to say. Yeah, that, that was the word. It wasn't exactly known. And we we always have to to date ourselves and, and just say that here in 2021, the, the hindsight of everything. But at that time, before a prominent Internet presence you know, uh, you know, the only dirt sheet was like if, if the observer, you know, David Meltzer's observer, if you didn't get that, you just weren't getting a whole lot of, you know, especially again, in comparison today of insider information. So for fans that are, you know, what were 16 years old at the time, maybe 17 max, this was definitely fooling us a bit. Like we were smart enough marks to know that there had to be something to it. But again, it was really one of the first, really realistic 
storylines, especially like beyond ECW at that time, between the the big companies that was WWF of the time and WCW, this was kind of the most gritty and real storyline uh, of those two major companies ever. At this point, it, especially for that time period. Exactly. Was and it was like, it was definitely confusing. Like we knew that Razor Ramon had left the WWF. His contract was up. We knew that much. Um, but we didn't know. Like we thought he was going to show back up as the diamond stud or something again. Like we didn't really know what they were going to do. That was what was different, too. He just showed up in like a jean jacket suit that only fucking Razor Ramon in 96 could pull off. And uh, yeah, we had, you know, he just went by his real name of Scott Hall. Again, very well, no, real for the time. It, well, yeah, not yet. No, they didn't say it, that yet. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yes. At the time, they had no names and he came out and he talked just like Razor Ramon. He had the hair the same way, he had the toothpicks, the, toothpicks. the whole nine. Yep. So they would, and this is something that I forgot about. So he does that. Then the next week he would come out and he would confront Bischoff at the table. And he said, like, we that's the first time he said, we want three. Get three and we'll face you. So the next week shows up. And this is the one that I forgot about. There was, uh, he was out there doing the same thing with Bischoff and Sting came out. And he's like, forget about three on three. Let's just have a match right now. And Hall does the, you don't tell me what to do thing. But he's like, I'll tell you what. He's like, next week, I got a big surprise for you guys. So the show goes off the air. Next week, he comes out at the end of the show, confronts Bischoff at the table. Bischoff now this time is kind of pushing back. Like, where's your guys? What are you, what are you going to do? Da, 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 da. He points behind him, none other than Diesel at the time would show up. That's what we knew him as. So they would be referred on TV at this point as the Outsiders. And they were building up to maybe having a match with somebody at the Great American Bash. They were invited to show up, which they did. And what would happen was they would powerbomb Eric Bischoff off the stage. And that was amazing. Set up. I remember we were getting yeah. nuts to that. Because again, this you got to keep reiterating, this shit did not happen commonly. And Bischoff taking no. that kind of bump, which he did get murdered for real pretty much too, because he like yep. folded up through the table. Yeah, and it was like the first setup table like stage thing that they that WCW ever did at that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. And it was pretty clear at this point that something like we knew it was a storyline, but it still had our attention. And they were building up. And this was kind of when they said, okay, we'll have three, you bring three and we'll face you guys at bash at the beach. And they were doing a lot of build up. And now this is the time where, as the Jay said about dirt sheets and the internet, where all that stuff was really starting to heat up even for us. So we were reading a lot of the stuff coming up and I'm sure you remember some of this, Jay, the Jay, the third guy is going to be Mabel. The third yeah. guy is going to be Yokozuna. So many rumors. Yep. It's yeah. We heard a million. Oh, it might be ultimate warrior, you know, like all that shit. So then uh, comes bash at the beach. I remember watching this pay-per-view live and this was one that you were not there for the Jay. You were hunting Florida man at the time uh, in your, that was probably in your early years of hunting Florida man. That's when I, mean, I first he wasn't began. Called, he wasn't even called Florida man at that point. He was just kind of like a, He's like Loch Ness. He didn't really have a identity. I was a hunter's so apprentice learning the ropes. Yeah, to get ready to go after Florida, man. So we were watching Bash at the Beach and uh, watched it with a couple friends of ours. And we, of course, the whole night was just a build up for the main event. That's what we wanted to see. 
So the WCW team, which consisted of Macho Man Randy Savage, Sting, and Lex Luger, came out. Then the Outsiders, which they were known at the time, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash came out with no third man. So they proceeded to have the match, and it was going pretty well. And then all of a sudden, WCW started turning it on big time. And at one point in the match, they had Macho Man Randy Savage down for the count. I believe Nash powerbombed him. And then Hulk Hogan comes out. WCW, the announcers are going nuts. Like, what are you going to do now? Blah, 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 blah. And then Hulk Hogan did something that none of us expected at the time. He turned on Macho Man, became a heel, and off became the NWO of Hogan, Hall, and Nash, which would run roughshod over the company for a good year. And they would start adding more people to it. I remember, you know, uh, Ted DiBiase was added. Because they wanted a manager, so they got Ted. Six, uh, which was X-Pac or the one, two, three kids. Sean Waltman was up next. So at this point, it was pretty clear that these guys were kind of an allegory for the WWF. Then they screwed up and added the giant to the fold. And then they continued to screw up and would do this. uh, Sting would basically be out of action for a year where he would just show up as this crow character. Uh, That ended up like a lot of people look back on that as like a shining example of really good stuff in the 90s. As a fan in the 90s, it was fucking frustrating as hell because they didn't really clarify what was going on. So basically, you just had to see Sting fucking in the rafters for a year before you realized what the fuck was actually going to happen. Because you didn't (laughs) think the WCW was going to deliver on it. And they almost didn't. And you know it would end up becoming too big, like so many things we were talking in our opening segments about these big corporations and just things getting too big. And and that's what happened to the NWO. It just got to the point they added way too many dudes. It just really threw off the roster. It's like who's left in WCW to fight them at this point? You know, you need the the good versus evil, and and it was completely one sided at, at certain points. And then, of course, like with anything, man, you know, you're you're doing all these sequels, Friday the 13th, Part 11, Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 12. You know, it just gets so ridiculous, so tough to do in in unique ways. And that's what happened to the NWO. They ended up splitting into uh, different factions. There was the 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 Wolfpack NWO. Then there was even like where it really jumped the shark, if you will, with like the Latino World Order that was not like a, a comedy gimmick. It was like an actual faction was the latino world order at one point and uh and yeah it just would end up oversaturating and ultimately you know basically cracking the foundation of the structure of wcw going hand in hand with the fact that the you know the the corporate side of it and the business side of it where ted turner no longer really wanted wrestling on his cable so you know you put in the oversaturated bloated nwo with that and that was kind of the combination that ended up being the the death knell of WCW going out of business eventually. Well, it wasn't even really Ted Turner because once they sold to Time Warner and the people at you know TNT decided at the time they Oh yeah, that's why I was mentioning like the big there. the big wigs, yeah, whoever it was making yeah, the decisions. Yeah, because Ted Turner was completely out of it at that point as far as decision making. And then we saw of course them eventually get absolved by the WWE and Vince McMahon. Um, but without a doubt, the NWO is extremely important, uh, not just because it was about Hulk Hogan's uh, turn heel, uh, but 
it was the thing that gave WCW the upper hand in ratings. Exactly. Without the NWO, they're not, yeah, they're not doing that. Yeah, they had it for 83 consecutive weeks. 1996 is the only year in its history that WCW actually turned a profit. And that was all due to the NWO. They made enough movement where for for years before that, all the eyes in the wrestling world were on the WWF. And they made enough noise to where everybody kind of looked over and they just couldn't keep it going. Um, of course, this would all kind of turn the tables around the time of uh, WrestleMania 14, once Mike Tyson had involvement, uh, then the ratings started shifting the other way and they would go back and forth for at least a year. But by 99, they would never win another one again. Um, And they would be out of business a little over a year later than that. Um, So it, it, it was cool. It really was a revolutionary time in wrestling. And I mean, I remember when NWO stuff was more mainstream than almost any other wrestling thing in the entire business, man. Like if you wore an NWO shirt in 1996, people were going to say something to you about it. But if you had a, you know, a Bret Hart shirt on it, man, nobody cared. It's not it the same thing. It was, it was, it was, was like the hip. Period. Yeah. It was the hip cool thing. Like it was cool to be a wrestling fan. At that time, yes. and, you know, you'd be you'd be out at the mall and like you mentioned, you have an NWO shirt on, but somebody would be like too sweet, you know, yeah. come up to you. It's dude, it really like the the huge Attitude Era Austin run, oddly enough, was that the table was set for that by the NWO, whether people realize it or not, because that's the, the first movement in making wrestling cool on a mainstream level. And Austin just kind of set that off in the stratosphere. But I don't know if that would have even been possible without people kind of being primed for something like that first. Well, the, it was the, the, the anti-hero. Like Hogan really yes. became the first anti-hero of wrestling by turning, but then becoming the cool cool version of Hogan, you know, with the, the infamous, you know, shadow, like five o'clock shadow look with the goatee over it and like, you know, what he wore at the time and the all black and all that. You know, I I had heard somebody make this comparison somewhat recently and I thought it it's really telling and it was good. Uh, they said the NWO thing was fantastic whenever it happened. And I would agree with that. It was really captivating. It, it had you like glued to nitro, like what is happening? Like, I got to see this. But once Hogan started doing the goofy beard and shit like that, it kind of started to become a parody of it itself. And it didn't, the seriousness of it kind of went away a little bit. And then... What it was, was like Hall and Nash were supremely cool. Everybody thought they were cool. But then when Hogan would come out, it would kind of be like, this fucking guy. And it worked for a lot of people that got into wrestling because of that stuff. But for guys like us who are around already fans of this shit for years, we were exhausted with Hogan. He would go months without defending the belt. He wouldn't lose it. Yeah, that was a good call. You can't forget about that. Yeah. No, because he he was a detriment to the company and he was a detriment to us as viewers. We did not want to see when he was on, no matter how interested we were in everything else. It was almost channel changing time when Hogan came out. Yeah, and that's the problem, too, with, again, reiterating that the NWO kind of just got too big and just was taking all all kinds of people on its roster and kind of just uh, misconstruing 
the the entire WCW roster as far as who could even face the NWO. And so, as we were saying, you know, full circle, always on the podcast, hey, you know, talking about the UFC and our opening variety hour and talking about not creating new stars and that comparison. Yeah. And that was that was a problem with the NWO. They're burying the young guys, not creating new stars, and that would end up being a huge detriment. Then you even have the anomaly that was Bill Goldberg, and yep. he, he even went over on Hogan in, at the Georgia Dome, which was awesome. But again, it would still catch up to everybody because at that point with uh, reconstructing their contracts, Kevin Nash and Hogan and them put in like what they should have never done, which is, again is another factor in the downfall, but getting them uh, personal creative control for their characters. Terrible. And it terrible. just was terrible. And then, of course, Kevin Nash and uh, Scott Hall hitting Goldberg with the cattle prod, giving him his first loss from the undefeated streak and they just started fucking up creatively and everything went downhill eventually. But again, we're, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the NWO and you can't forget that initial threesome, the Hogan turn and uh, the fact that they completely revolutionized the pro wrestling business at the time. And dude, you could say in the 1980s, the greatest faction of all time by a lot of wrestling fan standards was created with the four horsemen. And they did have the four horsemen in the nineties and stuff like that, but it never kind of was, you know, it, it was never like what it was originally. Um, but there was no doubt that the NWO is what brought factions back into wrestling. And that's been pretty consistent since that happened 25 years ago. And you really didn't see, like you might see Heenan's family and stuff like that, but there wasn't a whole lot of that kind of stuff. But after the NWO happened, you had degeneration X you had, uh, what the hell, with Batista and Trips in them, I'm drawing a blank, Evolution. Um, you know, you had a lot of different groups and factions in wrestling where prior to the NWO, outside of really the Four Horsemen, there wasn't a lot of them. So yeah, because Vince was supposedly never big on factions, and that even brought out DX and that creation and stuff, which ultimately helped them. So, so yeah, then, it, brings, it brings a different flavor to it. DX is a direct creation because of the NWO. Exactly. That's so what I mean. you, you can't have one without the other. So if you like DX, you got to at least give the NWO credit because they set the table for something like that to happen. So, and then of course there was no, my bad. Hey, no. I was just going to say the inevitable reinvigorating of the NWO when Hogan finally got back to the WWE after, you know, a huge hiatus after WCW um, closed and, and Nash and Hall were there and they reformed it. And like even Michaels uh, was in the NWO yeah, and WWE. So Booker just, T was too. Yeah, it just was yeah. uh, just a shell of its former self as they do. And the only good thing that led to, of course, was the big Hogan uh, rock match at WrestleMania 18. That was like the NWO Hogan going into that. So that came out of it at least, but, but yeah, nothing, nothing beats the original. And uh, of course, uh, last um, hall of fame, the NWO as a whole was inducted into the WWE hall of fame, which comes full circle was a pretty cool thing to see too. Absolutely. So, I mean, you can say the good and the bad about it, but I think the fact that me and the J are trying to push across here was the NWO was extremely important to the wrestling industry back in 1996. We were there in living color paying attention to this stuff, and I could tell you it was about one of the biggest things we'd ever seen in the history of the business up to that point. So it's not a footnote. It's something that definitely has its own chapter, and rightfully so, because it made such a big difference 
overall in the world of professional wrestling, you can't tell that story without at least giving a chapter to the NWO and WCW. As Kevin Nash tweeted on Twitter on the anniversary date, July 6, 2021, happy 25 years of setting the standard. Most importantly, happy 25th to the NWO Nation for being there the entire trip and passing it on to your family and children. One love, NWO for life, wear your colors and show our numbers. And, and that's the thing too. If, if it wasn't that big of a thing, uh, it doesn't get passed from generation to generation. Absolutely. And there's no doubt that that click uh, hand thing uh, that became the NWO sign that still gets used today by people in exactly. professional wrestling. Yep. Um, if that's even part of that legacy, it's something that's going to last a long, long time. So that is our wrap up of the 25th anniversary of the NWO from two guys that were there in living flesh. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. We are going to take a real quick commercial break. And when we come up, we're going to do the show wrap up and the Jay is going to give us the lowdown on all the goofs in the world. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Cut and Run Studios is a multimedia facility that specializes in video production and photography. In the internet era, visual communication is the most powerful tool for storytelling. We believe it is our job to deliver the most compelling visual interpretation of a message and provide all the necessary capabilities in-house so that we can cover every angle of your story. Our production facility is at 1532 Beachview Avenue, Pittsburgh, PA, 15216. Check us out at cutandrunstudios.com. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs Are Goofs. And we're back. So the J, what do we got this week on the goof front? Always an abundance of goofs here on the What's Real Podcast, episode 77. Hey, yo, like every week is no differente, as they say in Espanol. See how good my Spanish is starting the show with it and closing the show with it. Hey, you. <laughs> our first viral video of the week. I don't know if you saw this one. I sent it to you just uh, for a reference in case you missed it. But a Texas teenager went viral. Uh, he was at Top Golf and his golf ball that he drives gets hit by fucking lightning. And somebody caught it on video. Lightning strikes the golf ball in midair. And it's some crazy shit. Dude, that's like one of them things where it's like, it sucks you didn't at least throw it out there to be like a smart ass. And be like, anyone, anybody want to bet that I can't fucking get this ball struck by lightning <laughs> yeah. and then it happens? Yeah. It's like, you know, like when you're golfing, you're like, dude, what do you think? Uh, anybody got 50 bucks that this is a hole in one? You know, like, yeah, that one you would have, you, that shit would have paid. I would have been like, Fuck, I don't even, I didn't want to give you the money. I thought you were kidding, but you did that. So here's you own you earned that shit. Yeah, that would pay out the ass if that happened. But yeah, just a crazy Jesus. video, the timing and just luck of something like that. But that was a crazy one in the viral video of the week here on Goofs or Goofs. Moving on, hey, you know, just because this has some sort of a connection to the show. Going back to uh, not only our love of the great Eddie Murphy, uh, but not too long ago, we reviewed his latest film, Coming to America. But this was a weird one. Uh, 29 years after the movie Boomerang, guess what came back, hey, you Boomerang 2? A weird family collab as, I don't know if you heard about this, but Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence's kids, uh, Martin Lawrence's eldest daughter, Jasmine, uh, actually got together with Eddie's eldest son, Eric. 
like they're a couple. Yeah, she uh, put a sent a happy birthday to Eric on Saturday in a loved up Instagram post confirming their relationship. Well, now they just have to make life. Well, now it's I was going to say Remember it's uh, bad boys, bad boys for real. How, you know, Martin Lawrence was always like oh, yeah. <laughs> worried about fucking uh, Mike, Lowry. Mike Lowry. So, yeah, it's fucking happened for real. But, yeah, I thought that was so funny and very weird to bring up here on Goose or Goose that Eddie Murphy's son and Martin Lawrence's daughter are an actual couple. So very strange, man. 2021 keeps the hits coming with weirdness. Hey, you know, <laughs> I'll tell you that. Yes, indeed. Next up, uh, this is yet another theme here on Goose for Goose. Us and fucking animals on drugs fucking continues. Hey, yeah. <laughs> and no, folks, whoa, we do not make not, this up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I got to clarify. Uh, the J was just saying that as a figure of speech. We're not talking about fucking animals that are on drugs. <laughs> yeah. To be clear. Not at all. Yes. But, uh, and this is, uh, this isn't just some random, you know, clickbait thing that we got. This is from CNN. A brown trout can become addicted to the illegal drug methamphetamine when it accumulates in waterways, according to new research. So brown trout are now meth addicts here in 2021. Hey, especially, especially all the ones in West Virginia. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Dude, can you imagine catching a, a meth addicted trout and you're like all confused? Like, man, what's wrong with that thing? It ain't acting right, it's Billy. Just, it, yeah, I'm not fishing ever again. So <laughs> not, that's not going to be. It's like, what are you going to do? Like, go to a restaurant. Like, do you guys have the trout? Like, yeah, we have some. It's fresh. Like, is it addicted to meth or no? <laughs> Did you like, guys? Are people going to get stuck? Like, dude, I never did meth in my life. I got addicted because I went to a restaurant and ate this fucking fish. Make sure you test your restaurant's trout for meth, please. That's the the Jesus. new the new request from the FDA in 2021. Hey, yo. <laughs> got to drug test the fucking trout. <laughs> and we're going to close this week's Goose or Goose with uh, some sex talk. It's kind of correlating with last week's where the chick was having orgasms when exercising. And, and this one goes into the film world as Marion Coulter praises actor Adam Driver for being able to sing while simulating oral sex in the upcoming film Annette. Now, hey, oh, here's the fact. This would make Adam Driver the first actor in movie musical history to sing an original song whilst performing Cunnilingus. So here's my question: Would you would you call that act Cunnasingus or no? <laughs> yeah, I would now. <laughs> but um bump. But um bump. But yeah, between freaking lightning striking a ball out of nowhere, looking like Thor was pissed and fucking with some Texas teens, to Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence's kids getting together in a real relationship, to Trout on meth and Adam Driver singing a complete musical song whilst performing cunnilingus goose are goose i think i could do that though i'm not gonna lie. i think i could too i would what song would you pick i mean i, uh, I don't know that's a good question i do stairway I to heaven just to thought. make sure i get my <laughs> wife off I was gonna say, why are you trying to sing it for 46 minutes she's like all right i'm that was good but i'm <laughs> you, you can come up now 
All I know is I just want to hear you do that. And then it's like, Shh, this is where he does the flute part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the weirdest noises ever. <laughs> it's like, dude, I don't know if he's doing the flute part or if he somehow just drowned it in there because it sounds kind of similar. Yeah. Uh, too much. Hey, uh, yeah. So that's it for us this week on episode 77. Enough of the fuckery. We're going to send you guys off into happy land. Don't forget to join us here next week for episode 78. We're going to have a lot of fun next week, of course, as usual. But before we go, I hear the J revving it up. So the J, take it away. Revving it up like a trout on meth or Adam Driver singing <laughs> cunnilingus. Hey, y'all. Um, yeah, it's been another great week, man. Love the show. Always got to shout out our man. The wizard behind the boards himself, our producer, Cam. Keep bringing it, Cam, like you do. You're like the rock. You just bring it. It's beautiful work, and we love that 16K sound here on What's Real Every Week. To all the peeps hearing my voice on the journey with us, or even if you're just listening for a few seconds, we love and appreciate you. As I always take the stand and go a little bit ahead of hey with his same message because we really mean it from the bottom of our hearts. Stay safe. Stay healthy out there. You'll hear the J next week. That's right. We celebrated 25 years of the NWO this week, and it's like the NWO was forming all again because me and the J invaded the world of podcasting, and you thought the wizard was coming to save you, but he joined up with us, so we got another one. Too sweet! So, big too sweet to you, the J, once again, for sitting down with me as we do here on the show. There's nobody else I'd rather do it with, brother, so thank you for doing that once again. Another too sweet out to the wizard behind the boards for making us sound so fucking good each and every week, and we know that nobody beats the whiz. So that is it for us here on episode 77. If you guys are listening on iTunes, don't forget to give us a five-star review. We really appreciate that. Helps get some more eyes and ears on the program. And of course, you can listen every week on all your favorite podcasting platforms, such as iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and each and every week at churchillpictures.com. If you have anything you want to send us to the show, you can email it to us at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. But that is it for us this week, guys. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, get vaccinated, and we'll see you here next week on the What's Real Podcast. What's real? What's real?